Greetings, everyone. Hello, and welcome to another Merged Worlds Dungeons & Dragons story stream. Happy to have you here. I have a kitty on my lap. Um, thank you for coming back by for another episode of this story uh, that I enjoy sharing with you all so very much. Uh, it is a great pleasure to be able to let you folks uh, in on the world uh, that I've created. Uh, so thank you all for being here. Um, we'll, of course, as always, begin with just a real brief recap of where we left off uh, before we move into the newest episode for today. So, um, as always, thank you for coming. If you enjoy yourself today, please remember to click the like button. Most importantly, remember to subscribe and hit that bell notification so you'll know when all of our streams and videos are coming out. Okay, so... Um, where we left off last episode, um, our heroes had once again come from the different parts of the world to band together uh, to help one of their own. Um, as we know, Michael, uh, husband of Dandy, uh, in a battle, uh, the magical spear Menandra, uh, the intelligent magical item uh, that he uses to fight and hunt undead, was broken in half, and he has been in a coma state ever since. Um, through their magical allies, they've learned that his soul is trapped inside of Menandra. And the only thing uh, that can save him is Menandra has to be physically repaired to perfection. It can't be half-assed done. It's got to be done as good a quality as the original work. And that um, the second thing is that somehow the magic that instilled the, I guess you'd say, aura or essence of Menandra inside of the staff, the, the, you know, whatever that magic item was, you know, made it, made and created Menandra, if you will, has to be reproduced, and that our heroes have one year before the magic in the piece of the staff will fade and Michael will be lost forever. Um, so searching for someone to repair that, they did learn that it was of dwarven quality and through contacts in the city of Paxawell, where they do everything, it seems, they met up with their friend Darsh, and they learned that there is a dwarven kingdom no one knew about, a distance to the east past the elven lands of Santriel. And they had to, that it was, it was said that there they could find someone who could help them. So given a guide uh, and Darsh's ship, they sailed through the waters into lands known as the Reef, a section of land that was originally a mountain, but the merge crashed it and the ocean rushed in, and now there's these really teethy, jaggy things sticking out of the water, and it's really dangerous for ships, and there's cracks in the giant cliff walls that you can maneuver. Oh, Camille says, wish I could stay, but work in six hours. No problem, Camille. I appreciate you coming by. Have a good one. Um, but they were guided through there, and Darsh's ship and his expert crew, of course, were able to make it into the land of Coromon, the Dwarven Kingdom. It's a city, if you would imagine a, a big carved out round bowl uh, inside of a mountain. So this massive mountain that comes down, and there's a giant doors, like a dragon could walk through there comfortably. Metal doors. There's a city built onto the rocks on the outside, and parts of it looks old and parts of it looks much newer. 
So arriving, they go inside. They're taken to the High Thane, which is basically the Dwarven King. And they are questioned about what they're doing, why they're there, shown Menandra, told the story of Menandra. And the Thane agrees to allow them to speak with a dwarf named Duberinth, who they've been told could be the one dude who could fix Menandra uh, back to its original state. Uh, Duberin is an older dwarf who does come bumbling in. Um, and again, he hears the story of Michael. Dandy tells it in detail why he deserves to own or be in the ownership of Menandra and why this deserves to happen. After hearing the story, he agrees, yes, it is within my abilities to repair this to its original form, but to do that, I will need the type of wood it is made of, which is known as kilt wood, and it grows deep underground. It's almost like a, a roots that are almost the strength of stone. Um, excuse me, very rare uncommonly used, but very strong when, when done correctly. And uh, he says some of that grows in a grove deep in Corman. And you'll also need his forge and his tools, which are in there as well. But he says before he can do that, there's something they're going to have to do for the kingdom of Corman. Because these two things go hand in hand, and he's not going to be able to do what they need until they do what he needs first. And that's kind of where I left off. I'm going to talk about what that is or why they have to do it. But that is where we're going to begin today with uh, a little bit of the story of Corman and why it is in the state that it is in. Hello, Xbox. Uh, Elemental, good question. Bring my head down. Uh, what time your side server roughly? I, I'll be honest, I, I, I'm not sure. Um, I'm going to be working on it throughout the day, but it just depends on how long it takes to set up. Sometimes it goes really quick and fast. I, I apologize, I don't have a, a specific time. So I have to run a couple errands in the morning. But I'll try to get it up early day if I can help it. Because I want it up before the stream at 6. So. And here uh, we're going to roll into basically uh, Dubrin. So Dubrin is going to uh, begin to tell uh, the tale of, of Corman. So he says, this is why you have to help us before we're able to help you. And if you get questions about the story or anything, feel through them in here. If you're listening or watching later, um, whether it's on YouTube, iTunes, or Spotify, uh, you can definitely leave comments on the video here, or you can send an email on my website, onlydraven.com. Down at the bottom of the homepage is a place you can submit uh, even anonymous questions. It's not your email. And I'm happy to uh, reply as soon as I can. All right. So this is Duberin speaking to the characters. Um, explain. Um, I'm seeing the donation goal. <laughs> yeah, Jim, we, uh, we hit the last goal much earlier than I thought, and we're trying to think of a new one, and this one popped up, and people decided to go with it. Thought it was funny, so we stuck with it, at least for now, anyways. Hey, Rose. All right, so here's Duberin's tale. Duberin says, I was already a grown dwarf when the night of loss happened. Duberin begins. Craven Hammersmith was our thane then, a great leader he was. Corman had been enjoying a period of peace and prosperity, and as his younger brother, I was proud to share his name. Hello, Brady. I was a craftsman. I'd apprenticed under the greatest craftsman of my age. As a, at a young age, I surpassed all my teachers, creating weapons of stone and wood unequaled since before the damning. The damning is an ancient dwarven tale for another time. 
I was the master of my own forge. I had apprentices come from all over the kingdom to train under me. I do not tell you these things out of ego or pride. They are simple facts. I tell you this so that you might understand that even with my station and my rank, the skills that I had, I was no different than any of my kin to it. It came from below, and for the record, this isn't a, a Lord of the Rings. It's very, it's different than that, but it's still going to start sounding like a, a Lord of the Rings thing, but it's not. Uh, it came from below, somewhere deep beneath us. Hundreds were lost before we even knew it, it was happening. Dubrin is quiet a moment, lost in memory. Not a sound is made by any dwarf in the room. When Dubrin continues, his voice is shaky. I was awoken by the screams. They seemed to come from everywhere. They echoed from the stone, making it hard to know the source and direction. I armed myself and went into the streets. People were running everywhere, not knowing what was happening. I fought my way to the thane, who was gathering his warriors to face the unknown enemy. What was attacking us, I asked him, but he did not know. No one living had seen the creatures. There were only rumors and tales of shadows and death. I swore to stand by my thane against the threat and to defend our home, but I was denied. I was to lead as many of our people to the surface as I could. There I was to wait while our warriors destroyed the threat from below. A single tear falls from Dubrin's eye as he continues. That was the last time I saw me, brother. Not one dwarf who went with him was ever seen again. My people left the land of our birth and came here to the surface, the screams of the dying echoing in our ears the entire trip. What we thought would be a temporary displacement became a permanent exile. Any attempt to take back Corman has met with crushing defeat. A few times, single dwarves or small groups have made it in and out of the upper city, but no one has returned from any of the lower city. It's been over 200 years since I saw my home. Over the years, more and more of our people left this valley to try and start over. Some of us stayed, though, trying to create a home here, always hoping to one day make our way below. My nephew has grown into a great leader, and Thane, and I am proud of him as I was his father. At this, uh, Thane Craven's uh, face turns a bit red in embarrassment. Seeing this, Dubrin's face breaks into a wide grin. But I know in his heart that his dream is the same as mine, to take back Corman from the evil that festers inside of it and return it to its former glory. Turning, he looks to each of the characters and says, you know, each of the people says, um, this dream is now your dream as well. The only way to fix your weapon is with the trees beneath Corman. I would need my forge and tools as well, and this could never be done while Corman is controlled by the demons within. The only way to save your friend is to free Corman. Hello, Blue. <laughs> so, uh, you know, every, uh, the room's, you know, kind of murmuring and grumbling at this because it's like, well, you know, that's true. I mean, no one could ever really get down there again. So, at this, they're like, well, okay. Do you remember we... Yeah, that was just earlier today. <laughs> but, uh, yes, so the go is into it. And our <clears throat> heroes are like, okay, this is basically what's come down. All we need is below. It would take time to repair this. It's not like a band-aid and a fi quick fix. It's going to have to be... Uh, it'll take me days to properly repair this. Can't do that under attack. And I don't even know... We can get to Lower City since, specifically, uh, no one's ever got there and back. So, 
We don't know what or they are. But we have some clues, some things we've learned over the years. Um, it appears, that, to us anyways, that there's more than one. Well, they're incredibly fast, but they never come into the light. They've never come up here. Uh, they've never even come close to the surface. In fact, they've never gone beyond Upper Corman, which is a good travel to get down to that. Um, so it, it, it takes a while. Um, again, like I said, a few people have slipped in and out. Very sneaky, careful, but they don't go any further than Upper City. There are three levels of Corman. There's Upper City, Middle City, and Lower City. Uh, each one is a massive cavern chamber. The first one, uh, you go down, winding through the mountains to get to it. It's a giant cavern with a huge crevice through the middle of it. Can't even see the bottom, but down far, far, far below, supposedly, is a great river with incredible current. Um, on the other side of this giant crack is where Upper City is built. Half of the city is built on the outside of the wall, the other half of it's inside of it. So it's very roundish-like, but part of it is, is, is visible. Um, and there's a big, great bridge that's across this called the Thanedon Span. And the Thanedon Span is overwhelmingly well-made. Armies could march across that, and it won't even crumble in the tiniest. At the same time, the dwarves have the ability to blow it. Uh, it is built in from within inside a lower uh, upper city. They could feasibly destroy the bridge. They have been hesitant to do that because doing so almost completely negates any chance they're going to have of taking a force down there to take their lands back. Because, uh, again, this is a huge crevice. There's no throwing a grappling hook across this. It's pretty savage. Um, so it would be tough to do. Uh, plus, the things aren't coming past. The, they're not coming all the way up. So doing that really they don't, isn't really needed at this point. But once you get across the Thanedon Span into Upper City, you have to travel through Upper City a, short, uh, a distance before you will find the road to Mid-City. And there are two paths, east and west, that lead that. And both of them are just great kind of like curving arcs. And again, it, you got to understand, each of these caverns is a city. And it could take a day or two to travel from one to the other. This is massive underground caverns with distance in between. In between them, on this wide road cavern. And again, it's big enough that Darsh couldn't hit the top of it. You know, it's a big space, wagons of supplies going up and down. You'll occasionally come across a town. There'll be an inn built into the side or a couple of huts and some type of workman who sells things to people who are going up or down. You got a mule and loses a, a shoe. You got a repair shop, you know, that kind of thing. So it's, it's very much like an above ground countryside, except everything's underground. There are villages, towns, and the major cities to travel to them. But they're all Coromen to the dwarves. They're upper city, mid city, lower city. Um, and then within each city, there are districts. There are multiple clans that live within Coromen. I'm telling you this because it's going to matter as we move forward. The different clans have their own sections, if you will. But the majority of the cities and everything in between those are very, um, you know, everybody can live there. Very neutral. But there's usually a, 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 a thane of a specific clan, the high thane being the king, uh, and that is his clan currently is, is over that, which reminds me, I should grab that book. Um, let me grab that book. There it is. So I'm probably going to need this. Um, I have a map of upper, middle, and lower city that I'm going to post a little bit in the future. Uh, not right away, because... On it is some of the things that might give away what we're going to be going into, uh, or what they're going to have to face. So after we're through this area, I will give you a post up where we can do that. Um, 
see. Uh, question. Can you see the sky looking up a cliff, or is it enclosed? Inside it is completely enclosed. What's up, ghost? Yeah, inside it's completely enclosed. It's just a giant carved out thing. So, yeah, they, they don't, there's, it's so thick in stone, no one could dig through it. The door, the giant doors are the only way in. And what they're living in now outside was, part of that existed. It was, a lot of times there were people who did a lot of traveling and trade and stuff outside. Um, so a lot of those lived on the edge. There were guards to protect uh, the gate. But once it's closed from inside, it's not opening, which is why they've not closed it. Because if they close it and they're outside, it's feasible they could never get back in. Um, yes. So, the five clans are the Rhaegar, um, the Dolom, the Kaban, the Batar, the Shinar, and the Ventoy. These are the clans as they exist within. Now, Upper City is, again, almost all general. The clan homes are kind of in Mid-City and Lower City. Uh, the current High Thane is Rhaegar and has been for, for generations at this point. Um, but different clans kind of have their own professions. So I say this, I'm going into a little bit of detail here, because if somebody was eventually going to play Dungeons and & Dragons in Merge World and they wanted to choose a dwarf, uh, they're different, the different clans have different professions and some basic different skills, um, perks if you will, pros and cons, uh, depending on the clan that you chose, as well as the way they physically look. They're, each clan kind of has a look about them. Um, and while, you know, it's not forbidden to marry outside of clans, and it happens all the time, um, a lot of people just happen to, you know, stay within clans, so on and so forth. But it's, it's as long as you're a dwarf, that's all they, and not a gully dwarf, that's not acceptable. But any, as long as you're a regular dwarf, <laughs> they don't care. Um, so, they're basically given all this information as I've given it to you. Um, and... They're like, you know, you've got to go down there. Um, while we'd love to just muster up a force and march down there with you, every time we've tried that, we've no one's returned. Um, and what few scouts can slip in can only find what's left. That's not said with a positive noise. So they basically ask, do you accept this? I mean, if we understand if it's more than you can handle and you wish to take your artifact and seek assistance somewhere else... Um, or will you basically help us take back our kingdom and we'll help you save your loved one? And, you know, they're not fools. They, the characters are like, well, give us a minute. Dwarves are like, okay, we understand. This is a big decision. And they kind of talk about it and they were like, well, we could try to look somewhere else because it's important that you remember that as a dungeon master. I try not to railroad. If they said, no, we're going to look find something else, I had a backup plan for another adventure, so I was ready to go. But uh, the hope was that they'd go into all the stuff that I worked for. And uh, the girls I played with were pretty good about that. They usually had a habit of being interested in the story. So uh, they agreed. They said, if because if they went another direction, they didn't know if they'd find somebody in time. Here's somebody who could do it. And uh, they've been known to save kingdoms before, which might have been a little egotistical of them. Um, but... They decided that they would take that quest. So, Thane and Dubrin are pleased. They're like, okay. And, you know, they're like, okay, we'll give you this, whatever supplies you need, food, so on and so forth. We'll arrange for you a guide because you're never going to find your way around there. So what we're going to do is we're going to arrange for you someone who uh, has been the most successful getting in and out. And while he almost always, you know, will only go in alone, I'm sure uh, in this situation... He may be uh, convinced otherwise. So, these guys are about to go underground. And while there's lots of places where they can light torches and such, the fear is sometimes you have light, other things will see it. 
Darsh, Dandy, Artemis, all three of them have Infravision. No problem there. Mercy has the crown that she wears, the circlet on her head she's had for a very long time that she can see underground just like it's daytime. In fact, in many ways, she's got perks over Infravision. Ulrich has nothing. <laughs> I mean, he has some magic items. I think I told you, I think he had, what, a ring of free action and a ring of fire resistance and such like that. And I think he had a sword plus one at this point. Because uh, at this point, the characters were choosing sometimes when it was time to choose treasure. The way I choose treasure in Dungeons & Dragons a lot was um, everybody rolled a 20-sided dice. Highest number gets to pick first, going down to the lowest, and it goes back up to the highest again. But um, if it's a good group, a lot of times they'll be like, listen, this is clearly going to be better for you. You take that, or I'll take this. Even though that's cooler, I'm going to take the thing that my character could use. Um, and so when we got to a certain point, they started looking at the treasure differently. Instead of, ooh, what can I have? Because they had decent pretty much, unless there was something ungodly uh, phenomenal there. They started looking at it as, okay, what could I give to this follower? What could I give to that follower? What would be good for Quan? You know, what would be good for Ulrich or Seamus or on Darcy's ship? What would Doran be good for? What would help Nathaniel or Nathalian be a uh, a better lookout? You know, things like that. Hey, Bragg, what's up, man? <laughs> it has been a while. Uh, but yeah, yes. So they started looking at that and they started outfitting their NPCs because these are people who are going on adventures with them at this like like Ulrich is now. Quan went with Darsh and Mercy last time. Um you know, they, they, Michael's always with Dandy. They started dividing some of that magic stuff out, so they started to have um, a little bit le better loot because I made it quite clear that I'm going to be putting them into situations that will be challenging for them. And many of their minions, while talented and skilled, are not their level or their caliber. So without some help, they're going to they're gonna have a bad day. So they took that and started providing some magic items and such. So... Uh, Ulrich can't see, and the dwarves don't have anything to give him to see, because they don't need anything like that. They can all see. So he, in many situations, is going to be blind or have to use a torch uh, or some type of light of that nature. And so that's going to be an issue. Infravision is heat vision. Uh, what about an enemy without heat, like undead or something else? Totally acceptable. You're correct. Uh, most things will give off even the tiniest bits of heat. Um, this is just how my research... Even something that's undead, if it's moving and joints are moving, friction happens and there could be the tiniest sparks of heat. And in something that is complete, complete pitch black, um, that can stand out. On the flip side, if you are looking at something that is warm, say you're underground and there's some heat or warmth in the stone, but now I'm seeing a black patch in front of it, I'm not seeing heat, now I'm seeing the absence of heat which can also work the other way. Heat vision means you're going to pull it in from the stone. It's very much almost like, I say, like a predator vision, if you've ever seen that movie. It's multi-tiered. It's not like black space and you only see the heat. Um, you see everything in a different spectrum, and heat shows up as brighter or darker colors. So as things move through there with absolutely no heat, that's going to make a blind spot that's going to be very, very obvious. Uh, there are exceptions to that, of course. Magic items, artifacts, and creatures with natural abilities that can cloak themselves. Um, magic items like robe of blending and things like that, which don't make you invisible but blend you in perfectly with your background, will also hide your heat signature in the same way. It will blend it in with what's behind you, so as long as you're not moving, they're not going to be able to see you. Again, very predator-like. You start moving, they'll see the wobbly. That might throw it off a little bit. Um, but there are ways around that, but... Most things give off at least a little bit of heat of some kind, uh, but there are exceptions.
Good question. Good question. All right. So, um, they agreed to find the source of evil. Uh, they will say that uh, clerics, because they're dwarven clerics, of course, just like everywhere else, uh, dwarves could be any, could worship any god. Well, most of them worship a specific god, uh, which is Thorin, god of the mountain. Uh, very, very other popular ones, of course, are uh, Minara, goddess of light. It's basically, she's the god of good, right? Even though it's of light, of good. She's the main god. So there's always going to be some of them. Um, some healers, Kavian's god, god of life, of course. Um, let's see, Corum, god of war. Warriors of dwarves are definitely that. That god and god of the mountain are probably their two most common clerics you're going to find for dwarves. Um, and then you'll find some odds and ends ones in there, god of business, things of that nature. So, uh, I'm going to throw a couple little things out here as we're playing in the next uh, episode or two that I'll be intrigued if anybody picks up on it. And if you do pick up on something that sounds interesting or might be important, but I've seemed to have slide by it, you feel free to call me out because I'd be intrigued to see if any of you catch on before they did. Uh, let's see. Could be blinded by intense heat. Yes, you could. Very much so. If you just were in a pitch black area, walk through a door, and all of a sudden there's lava, it's just like being in a dark room and walking into a bright room. Like or walking outside with a bright sun. Yes, it could be overwhelming. Same as um, when your eyes are in the infrared spectrum, when they're, if all of a sudden lights come on, it doesn't shift automatically. You'll be blinded for a round or two as well. And the stronger your infravision is, elves and dwarves being of the strongest, the longer it takes to shift back because they have better dark vision, uh, which technically dark vision is different than infravision. Dark vision is what Mercy has right now. Even though it's dark, she can see like it's daytime, but she doesn't have any heat sense at all. Okay. Um, yeah, quick question. Are you going to make a curse words profile for the new server? I don't know what that means. So I'll have to ask afterwards. Um, I'm not sure. Um, so yes, uh, so they're going to do that. So they say that they're going to... So they, they're given some stuff. They basically rest there, right? They go back to the ship, and they tell the crew what they're going to do. They agree to go on this mission. The dwarves are going to get them all the supplies they believe they need. They're going to wrangle up a guide. They know who they want, but they don't say a name yet. And, like, we are going to wrangle them up, and we will have someone ready for you on the morrow. Um, underground, it doesn't matter if it's day or night, because it's always technically night. They have their day cycles underground as well, and they stay with surface. Although they imply that their old world, the sun schedule was slightly different than what it is on this new world. Their days were two hours longer. Um, well, I still don't quite understand. It's going to be just like every other server. I give you the IP, you go into the game, and then you click on multiplayer. That's the only way I know to do it. Um, all right. So where were we? Um, so they go back to the ship, tell everybody what's going on. Oh, um, now, I also forgot to mention that... Uh, oh my god, what's his name? Tobias is with them, and he has magic to be able to see underground. He's covered there. Um, so he's, he's covered in that regard. So, let's see. So, what they do is they arrange to get coal his name. And I have his last name around here as well, but I'll have to find that in a minute. Uh, but Cole is going to be their guide. He's a relatively young dwarf, um, but he's extra on the sneaky side, and he's much easier, uh, much a much better time of getting in and out. 
Um, he's, he's, he's probably been the most successful about going in and out. I'll uh, tell you what, guys. I'll chat about the Minecraft stuff after the stream. I try not to go into that too much on this since a lot of the people who are listening to this for the audio podcast don't know anything about the Minecraft stuff. Uh, so if you want to hit me up on, on the Discord after the stream, I'll chat with you guys about the server stuff. Okay. So... They are provided with things like rope, grappling hook, food, water skins. They're like, oh, yeah, here's some stuff, you know what I mean, that you'll find helpful. And the group are like, well, we appreciate that, but hang on. And they drop their chest of holding, open it up, and the doors are like, oh, hot damn. They look inside, and they've got all these supplies, and they're like, we'll take what you've got. And they put it all down in there, and they see, wow, is that a barrel of pickled fish? And they're like, of course it's a barrel of pickled fish. Where would we go ever without bringing a barrel of pickled fish? The dwarves are like, you could be the chosen ones in this situation. That interaction actually happened. Because they're like, is that a barrel of pickled fish? Mercy goes, I never go anywhere without a barrel of pickled fish. And they're like, we love pickled fish. And they, they had, a, they had a, a bonding over pickled fish at that moment. Because uh, I, I kind of made it uh, pickled fish being a, a dwarf delicacy is kind of the thing. Because they don't get it that much when they live in the mountains. Uh, so underwater rivers, when they get fish, uh, pickling them so they last longer is better. Um, it is also well known in Dungeons & Dragons lore that Minotaur loved the meat of owl bear. Owl bear is a giant bear that also has owl features. I think they probably could have figured that out. But they're very big and very savage. Um, and their meat is disgusting. It's horrid, it's putrid, and no one in the world likes it but Minotaur, and to them it's delicious. And they desire it every chance they can get. So there have been several situations through these adventures where they fought an owl bear as a random encounter or something like that. And there would be like wrapped up, they always keep an empty barrel in there that they can clog so the stink doesn't get out, that they can fill with owl bear meat for Darsh. Because if it sits in there for a few extra months raw before they get to cook it, just adds a little bit more flavor, is how minotaurs roll. They love them some delicious owl bear. At one point, I think they tried to get Molly to make an owl bear pie for Darsh as a surprise. Um, but when she got the meat and opened it, uh, she had to do a saving throw fail and passed out. Uh, she was not able to handle the, the smell of the meat. But yes, she, she rolled a saving throw, and she failed. So they've got their supplies, and basically, Darsh does love pie. That is very true. <laughs> so they're introduced to Cole. Let's see what Cole looks like. Now, instead of using a lot of the actors as I was using before, because I have so many new NPCs in here, what I'm doing is, again, I'm going kind of back to the... Um, I'm using a lot of the Hero Forge, where I can really customize the different characters as I like them. Cole, as you can see... He's a young dwarf. Um, he wears mostly, mostly uh, leathers and such. He fights with two short swords. Uh, not a big uh, shield guy at all. Uh, and he's pretty, pretty sneaky. He's, he's not a rogue by any means, uh, but he does have some decent stealth class to him. And he is of the Ventoy clan. Um, so uh, they are historically a darker-skinned type of dwarf, uh, whereas the Shinar... Uh, they're almost the opposite. They're almost all albino-like. They're very pale in skin. And they're, it is rare you're going to see them above ground. Shinar do not go into the sun. They're also the ones that most often deal in magic. Oh, good lord! Jason! Oh, wow! Wow, dude! Um, thank you so very much! You've inspired me to make a universe for my daughter. No more Gruffle. <laughs> Thank you very much. That is, wow, overwhelmingly appreciated. Holy smokes. Um, for those of you who know the way the game, the game, the channel works, I normally do a shot for every uh, $10 worth of donation we get. 
I'm going to hang on to those until tomorrow because being loopy during the story wouldn't be good for people listening to the story. I'm going to save those for... T- I'm going to do one in honor of Jason for being a kick-ass and then the other four I'm going to hang on to to do tomorrow right at the beginning of stream. So we'll be starting tomorrow with a little kick. But because I am going to get a little bit more potent for you today, Jason, because you're awesome. Again, thank you very much for that. It is ungodly appreciated. I'm going to... Uh, hit the moonshine we opened up yesterday. The Again, the um, Hunch Punch Lightning. Uh, this is by far the most potent and face-melting moonshine that I've had so far. Um, i got to do at least one in honor of Jason today. But uh, Short swords or long swords for dwarfs. That could be true, true. Short swords aren't actually a physical size. We're going to talk about that in a minute after I do... Jason shot. Thank you very much, Jason. Wow, that puts us a good chunk in the way to my butt not hurting. <laughs> Thank you very much. It is overwhelmingly appreciated. Where you, sir? Phew! Oh, my goodness. Ugh. Ugh. Oh, it's horrible. I almost want to keep just doing that for a while to get, get, get it going. But man, that one... Warms me up more than any other I've had. Okay. Those of you who are listening, I apologize for me taking a shot in the minute there. I will get back into the story, I promise. Short sword. A short sword is not a specific length. Neither is a long sword, or a bastard sword, or a broad sword, or a one-handed sword, or a two-handed sword. Um, the difference between those weapons, and for those of you who might want to play D&D down in the future, interesting fact, it's more about the physical design of them especially the blade. The blade, depending on whether it's a piercing weapon versus a slashing weapon. Uh, Some weapons are um, piercing in nature. They're meant to be stabbed. A rapier would be a good example of that. It's a long, thin sword. You're meant to poke. Um, And then you get something like a two-handed sword. It's a giant sword that you're arcing. Um, There are... Uh, when you when you're looking at a bastard sword, there's a one-handed bastard and a two-handed bastard. And they're the same weapon. It's the same sword, but it's a different style of using it. So with two hands, you get more strength in, but it may be a little bit harder to be finesse with it and blocking and such. So a lot of times when you say a short sword is still, compared to other swords that a dwarf would use, would be a little bit shorter because while they can slash, a lot of times they're more for poking and stabbing. So block and stab, block and stab, that type of thing. Um, A gladius, which is a classic Roman blade, uh, again depending on the weapon you're using, some are purely for slashing. And if you're looking at the equipment in a Dungeons & Dragons guidebook, normally they're going to give you a classification of the weapon. S, P, or B. Slashing, piercing, or blunt. Obviously, I'm not going to slash you with a baseball bat. So, just to give an example. And yes, we hit 75 last night. So we're now going to have to figure out a new goal. And I'm going to reach out to uh, Shadow tomorrow because we've unlocked another uh, emoji as well for that. So... So given all this stuff, Cole signs in. Uh, He's not overwhelmingly uh, impressed by our characters. Um, He is overwhelmingly, of course, um, respectful of Artemis, because that's a cleric, doors of the gods, right? Uh, No, the next one didn't, didn't, after we hit 50, another one didn't open until 75. Now they're opening up every 25 at this point. They they slow down. After a point, it'll get to every 50 and then every 100. Um, So yeah, they, they slow them down. Um, so, they begin their quest. So they get all their stuff, 
Uh, wish everybody a fun day, and then they head on out. I'm sorry, I got something in my eye here. It's killing me. Um, and they start heading down through those doors. And the doors, like I said, massive doors. Clouds floating near the top of them. Maybe not that high, but they're high, right? Um, and there's enough room for them to walk through side by side. When the door, like one door's closed and the other one's open a space. Um, but when you look at the doors from a distance, it looks like it's you know just barely squeaked open. But when you get up close and it's that big, there's a decent size. Three or four people could go in side by side. Um, but no one could push this door closed or open. There is a, uh, what do you call it? Um, <laughs> next emoji should be a shot glass. That's a very interesting idea. I'm gonna put that on the list. Thank you. That's a good idea. Um, but yeah, so it can only be closed and open from the inside. So there are always several brave dwarves who live just inside the door in the guardhouse, less than normally would have. Uh, normally, that's where a large amount of the uh, border guard would have been. But only a few stay in there in short uh, shifts. Like one will be there for like a month and then they switch out again. Um, because they know that they can be killed at any time. And while no one's been lost on that duty, occasionally they hear sounds echoing, they say. That sounds like screams from below. Though it's been 200 years, there shouldn't be anybody left alive down there. Okay. So they proceed to go down. Now, Cole, who's rather soft-spoken for a dwarf, because he's a guy who stay, he's known for being a quiet and a loner, um, and he kind of stays that way. Um, that's part of one reason why he's so good about getting in and out. He just doesn't talk a lot anyways. And he tells them right off the bat, he's like, I understand you guys know what you're doing. Sure, fine. I've heard tales. That's cool. You have to do what I tell you. And I'm going to be trying to do it as quietly as possible. If I point, you go that direction. If I hold my hand up, you stop. You need to do it. Every second of your existence, once we walk through those doors, you have to be trying to stay in silence. Which is going to be hard for some of you. And he looks out of the corner of his eye at Darsh, because he's huge. And the urge to talk will be difficult. And he looks the other side out at Tobias and Dandy. Because a wizard, they can only use, they're only useful when they're talking. And Dandy, not able to shut up. He knows what a kender is. Um, he's like, you know, the lives of your allies and compatriots and myself and uh, your young friend stuck in your, your staff, which they've left up here, by the way. They left it on the ship with Dorham. With the, if they're not back in, uh, what was it, 30 days, I believe? If they're not back in 30 days, they were to take the ship and leave and return back to Paxawal and give the artifact to Lamia in the hopes that she could find some way to continue without them and save Michael. Um, but that was what they were told. So um, they begin... Cole gives him the instructions, teaches him a little bit of when I do this, you do this, you know, a couple of basic silen silence and things uh, just to give them a, a starter and says they'll, they'll travel a long ways without talking. There'll be places where uh, it's, it's where talking and such can happen. There'll be places where camping and resting will be more likely. They need to try not to talk as much as they can between them. So they travel down through the doors and they travel for maybe 30 minutes before they finally enter into the halls of Coromon. This is a massive chamber. You can't see the ceilings of it with massive pillars reaching up into the darkness. Um, this was... If someone was to break through the doors, this is where the war would happen. If a dwarf or an enemy made it past this room down to the, to the, uh, towards the Thanedon span, they would blow it. They would blow the bridge and protect him because this is where all of the army would be there to stop them, whoever's coming in. 
Um, although this was very dirty and dusty, you don't see, or they, they don't see any like footprints or trails because they're looking for that. And at this point, they are traveling with a torch. Uh, Cole has advised them that they're, it, the, he's never run into any issues in the upper area until you know, they get to the cavern, actually, where um, Upper City is. He's never had any issues. But once he's got through there, he's heard things, seen things move out of the corner's eyes at a distance. Um, and the few, very few times he's had to k spend the night in there, whether it's locked in a closet or hiding in you know something small, uh, occasionally, especially when everything's silent, he'll hear noises of something moving. And it sounds quick, and it sounds like there could be more than one of them, but he's never seen anything like just staring and looked at something. Uh, and he's been down here more than anybody else in the last 50 years. So they don't really see any footprints and stuff. And that's because Cole usually goes all the way around the room to be careful. But they're in a hurry this time. And with this group, he feels they should be as straightforward as possible. And so he's leading them through. And for the record, Cole's a very nice guy. And the opposite situations where they can chat, he has a lot of questions. He asks them a lot about their previous adventures. He's very interested in their past um, and what brought them to this place. Because some of these races, while well, he's heard of them, he's never seen a Minotaur. He's never seen a Kender. He's seen humans before. I mean, everybody has. But, you know, and elves are a rare treat. Um... So as they are traveling through that, they eventually get to another, once they get through the end of the halls, is another set of massive doors. These ones are wide open. They're not as big as the other ones. They're about half the size, but they're wide open. And they're able to walk through those carefully. Now, this is where they have to be quieter, but they're still able to use the torch. This section here, it's going to take them a half day to travel from this point to the cavern where um, the upper city is. Uh, and this section here is known as Joran's Trail, um, which was named after a dwarven legend and one of the earliest thanes of Corman. I'm not going to go into that story. That's a story for another time. So they continue down, now being extra quiet. Uh, elves are a rare treat. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm not one to uh, you know, say that type of thing, but it's rare you see an elf walking around in dwarven lands. And not because they don't like each other or anything like that. But the last place an elf, nature-loving elf, wants to be is miles beneath the ground in a tight rock space. And you don't see a whole lot of dwarves wrapped in plate mail and carrying a hammer running through the woods. Uh, it's just their, their lifestyles are very different. Uh, but, you know, as some of the longer-lived races, um, there are very often when those two races will have treaties very early because they're like, we're going to live a long time and don't want to be in your woods. And we don't want to live a long time and we don't want to be in your rocks. You stay off our rocks, we'll stay out of your woods. Okay. We have gems and jewelry you'd like for your stuff or metal and ore, things like that, but you can supply us with some things we don't have. So trade and stuff like that is pretty... Ground is nature. Everything is nature. But um, out in uh, the foofy leaves of the forest, maybe not so much. One second, I'm going to grab a drink because we're about to get into some cool stuff. And I drank way more than I thought I was going to. All right. And I had something delicious for dinner, but I'm not sure my stomach is enjoying it anymore. But God, I want another one. Okay. So, they're traveling down Jorn's Trail. As I said, it's going to take them a half day. If they were bumping along um, at full speed, it wouldn't be an issue. Um, stream is a little leggy. I'm not showing any leg on my end. I don't have a zero drop frames or anything of that nature. So maybe the internet connection. If anybody else is having any issues, though, please throw it out. Let me know. But they travel down. 
And as the, the further they go, the more they come across what I'm about to describe. Broken wagons, empty armor, skeletons and bone. Um, as they're ma- the further they go, the more they run into that. And it's easy to see that all of it looked like it was going uphill, up the ramp. Um, as people attempted to flee the cities, some of them didn't make it. Um, and that, uh, at this point, you're not going to find much of value on any of these. Cole and some of the other scavengers have come through here and uh, picked them clean. And I say that not in a, I'm a greedy, I want the money. People like Cole, they live their lives going and getting things that belong to people, things of value, bring them back and returning them to their clans. Um, in exchange for that, they're well-fed, taken care of, given good weapons, because they're going down there doing some of the dangerous stuff, and they may come back with your grandfather's axe handle from 3,000 years ago that you'll never be able to replace. Um, and that's literally priceless to some of them. So the scavengers that do go down, they get caught trying to steal any of that stuff. It would not go well for them, because they're taken care of by uh, the group's by the different clans specifically because they put themselves in that danger. And there's not that many that do that long. Cole's been doing it longer than anyone else has ever done it as a profession. So they also come across like trash, things that probably 200 years, probably there was food stuffs in there that by this point it's so gone, it's completely disintegrated, you know, but there's the, the strings that were around bales of hay for animals and barrels that may have at one time had delicious pickled fish in them, but now sadly are just dust and dried wood. Sadly, because you can always use more pickled fish. And then again, the skeleton says, weapons that are come across um, are in very poor repair. Uh, Cole does take those back up sometimes, especially if it's one that looks like it was an, you know, a, a valuable weapon. If it looks like a generic military weapon, a lot of times he doesn't carry those. Dwarves could reforge them, but it's just better to make new ones. Um, but if it looks like one that belonged to somebody of important or an, you know, an antique or heirloom, he'll, they'll return those. But most of the time they skip past that. Again, they're not looking to make profit. They're looking to find things valuable, not necessarily for their value, money worth. So after the traveling this time period, they make it to the, the cavern. And it's at this point that Cole tells they're going to have to remove that t- the torch. The torch has got to go out because they're going to be going across this big chasm across a long bridge, and anything over in that city is going to see a torch just wobbling along. Um, Ulrich has not been looking forward to this, but he knew it was coming. Um, he, as soon as they heard they're going to dwarves, they're like, hey, this could be a problem for you, but you could stay on the ship. And he's like, no, that's not going to happen, because Mercy's always trying to get him to stay on the ship. He's like, not this time, no. Every time I leave you alone, you get in trouble. Oh, much better. Okay. So at this point, he is literally walking hand in hand with Artemis. So he's holding on to Artemis. Everybody else, you know, party order is important in D&D. The order you walk into things. And in this situation, Cole is first, followed by Dandy, and then Darsh. Anything big comes at him from the front, Darsh is their tank to help hold them back. After that is Tobias. We'll cast spells around him. Artemis, who will attempt to heal. And then after that would normally come Mercy, who's protecting the rear in case anything comes up. Always put your squishies in the middle. Your mages and your clerics, and sometimes your rogues and bards, need to be in the middle, protected by your warriors, so they can do all their cool ranged stuff. Um, 
Uh, Cole does also have a uh, small crossbow that he carries, a hand crossbow, but it's a last uh, case scenario. Ulrich normally is walking in front of Mercy. Mercy's always in the rear. That's just how that works. She's always been the one in the back unless something Darsh is unconscious or something. And so in this situation, instead of having Artemis with um, Ulrich right behind her, he's kind of walking with her hand in hand because she can see perfectly fine. She has her staff in one hand. She has a free hand. She doesn't have to wield the weapon. She can always let go and cast a spell if she needs to. It's, she's the best one to work as a guide in that situation. Um, Dandy is uh, very quickly impresses Cole with how quietly and quickly she moves. Um, and, you know, how well she can blend into the darkness and all of the thief skills that she starts showing off very early and is uncharacteristically quiet at this time. Because, again, as I've mentioned, on this quest, there have been several times where she got um, very serious compared to how she normally is and how important it is to her to save Michael. And, yes, the, the hand crossbow is always loaded because those things take forever. Hand crossbows aren't as bad. So, as they get there... What, they were, what was described to them is accurate, but they just never took in the scope. They walk in and it's just darkness, right? At first. But as their infravision and things start to fade in and they get to a point where they can't even sense heat because the distance, they can see the bridge, they can see how well this is. Uh, Artemis and Tobias actually having the best because his spell gives equal... He could see real well. And he, wasn't, he didn't use his spell on his improvision until they put the torch out. Um, but he's you know, doing the same thing. Um, and then Mercy, again, to her it's a bright sunny day. She's the only one who gets a full scope of what this place looks like. And it's massive. The entire kingdom of Serenity and each of the villages could fit inside of this cavern. It's so huge. Um, I mean, the cities themselves, not the land in between. Uh, it's just vast. And again, roof as far as you can see. Um, and it's very, very crazy. And the bridge, uh, wide enough for several wagons to go side by side, uh, is very easy uh, to cross. It's a very gentle slope. Um, again, looking at it, you'd be like, I don't understand how that hasn't fallen in yet. It looks thin and weak, but dwarven craftsmanship is unequaled in the work of stone. Uh, closest to that sometimes can be uh, deep dwarfs or gnomes, but this is a phenomenal thing. So it's a huge cavern, and the crevice, the crevasse, is also huge. Very, very uh, wide open, and they're going to be crossing it very, very soon. If they stand still, which they do, and make no noise just to take in the room, after a minute or so, when everything starts to go silence, you can feel, or not feel, you can hear the faint sound of rushing water. Sounds like a, a very far away waterfall. And it's not a waterfall, it's just very rapid water going at the base of that crevice. It's here that they really start coming across a lot of wreckage. Um, it's clear that groups have tr uh, a group tried to hold this side of the bridge at one point back in the very original battle, and whatever was in the city didn't let them get past this. But the dwarves that gave their lives here very likely saved many of the dwarves that managed to get out beyond them. Because as we know, it did whatever these it or they are has killed. There's more skeletons up there. But there would have been a lot more had these brave dwarves not. There have also been other dwarves that have come down here, as I've mentioned, force of dwarves, several hundred, if not a thousand, in a couple of situations, that came down and none returned. You're going to see a lot of their stuff here as well. So the armor and such um, can look generational, a little bit changed, as well as in some of them look older, newer, that kind of thing. Dwarven material is good. It doesn't rust real easy, but sitting there untaken care of for 200 years, anything is going to go funky. 
Sorry, I'm very thirsty tonight. All right. So, at this point, they have to cross. They knew that this is a dangerous point because they're going to be out in the open. The only thing moving in this giant cavern, <laughs> they hope, um, and they don't want to draw any attention to themselves. Cole said this is what, probably one of the most dangerous spots in the whole trip. Well, he's never seen anything here. It's usually much easier for him by himself. Now, as they're traveling through, uh, they find that Upper Corman is really one large city, and barely half of the city is exposed. What they're seeing, like these buildings and things all built out of the, the, the rock cliff face on the other side of this cavern, Imagine if that just kept going around and there was a city all inside of it with just like a little piece. Somebody was digging out a good way to be... So imagine if there was a buried car tire and you were digging at the side and you came across part of it so you just see a piece of that rubber sticking out. That's what this city is like. It's not perfectly round, but that's a good example. Though you see a part of the city sticking out here, but two-thirds of it or half at least is still inside. So they have to get through Upper City to one of the two roads that lead south. Um, Cole said he's always had an easier time going by the east ramp. West ramp, um, he's run into more noises, issues, and things. times he's had to hide uh, from things that he believes are looking for him. Um, east side doesn't seem to be quite as bad. It's also, east side is a little bit longer of a trip. It's further from Middle City, because it's the middle, uh, middle rounds is actually to the to the west of this, so you're actually having to go back and curve all the way around, and a lot of times that road is, is also not as uh, steep in many areas, so that's where a lot of wagons and supplies would come up and down, and people who were traveling would go the, uh, the other side, because it was a little bit steeper, not too steep, you can't run, but you also don't want wagons just rolling down for two days straight, that kind of a thing. No, I'm giving a lot of uh, information here, but Corman uh, is, is very in-depth and has a lot of cool stuff about it. So, uh, let's see here. We got that. All right, so get the giant cavern. Um, okay, so the fan is span. And again, when across the bridge, there's a big wall around the base. You have to go through this wall before you get into the city. Um, and again, there used to be guards and lights and such on there as well, but now there is not. So as they cross the span, they're going very, very quickly and quietly as they can. I did have them make several rolls to see whether or not anybody tripped or kicked a helmet or anything of that nature, but they were all successful in not making any odd noises here. Um, and they get across, and when they get across, they approach the wall. There's only one way in, and that's through the main gateway, which is open. Again, no one had time to close it on the way out. It's meant to be defended from within, not from without. Um, and that's the only way into the upper city. Cole says you guys gotta go right in the front door. And uh, like you said, Thanadins, so let me see here. So, so they need to head throw. So the gateway to central government is known as Thanadins Embrace. And Thanadins Embrace can be sealed from inside. Again, this is the tunnel. This is the one they're going to go in. There's Thanadins Embrace and there's Thanadins Hammer. These are the two paths. They're going to be going through Thanadins Embrace because it's a little bit easier um, in the long side, but it's also safer. Both of them can be sealed from inside. So if the upper city was to somehow fall, they could then collapse them so you'd be safe uh, down in the second city. Each one, the dwarves each time is like, okay, if we lose this, we back to here. If we lose this, we back to here. They have a lot of things that they've never had to use, but they kept in perfect order just in case. Dwarves are a prepared group. So they head through, and they, they're going through the city, and they're moving very, very quietly. And there are a few times 
that Artemis and Dandy believe they heard random noises, like a skittering, a pebble moving, scratch noise once in a while. Nothing that was too specific, and down there, they have no idea which direction. Every, with it being so empty, everything is echoing. So, they're, they have no idea, and they can't really bring it to Cole's attention, because they've been told not to talk if they can help it within the city. And since it doesn't seem like immediate threat, you know, they look at each other, and they sign, and they're like, I heard something, things that Cole taught them. Um, and Cole's just like, yeah, I know, we gotta go. So as they're traveling through the city, it is in fact that. Again, underground is nothing. It's much like the above city, but obviously older and better laid out because it was intended to be this way. Massive homes. Because as, you go, as you're going in, there'll be caverns and small caves and such with homes built around them and things. Um, and you're moving from cavern to cavern within this city. And in the earth itself, above you and beneath you are other homes and things built in tunnels. Um, and again, everywhere they go is destruction. Signs of skeletons, uh, many of these are not wearing armor of different sizes. People who uh, were obviously killed in some way. Um, and since they're, at this point, there's no meat on the bone. I hate to say it that way, but for all honesty, there's no, real, there's no way for any of them to really see what killed them. What kind of damage was there. Um, they find things like sometimes bones appear to be broken and pieces uh, further away from the skeleton. That would imply that either before or after death, limbs or something were cut off or ripped off. Um, these are things that Cole and the dwarves know as well from the excursions that Cole has made and others. Um, but they've never really been able to see what type of damage. Are they getting bit? Are they getting chopped with a sword? You know, what is it kind of damage might hint to what they're looking at. In 200 years, they're no closer to knowing, which is very sad. Um, let's see. So the primary gate, as I mentioned, um, Thanedon's Embrace, where they're going to go. They've also been told that there is a way, like I said, that you can close it from the inside. It doesn't collapse it, but it will close the gate and it can only be opened from the inside. The problem is, if they close that gate... They don't have the strength to open it again. It would take a lot more than what, even with super strong Darsh, it would take literally like a hundred dwarves to open this, you know, one of the big giant things you got to push and move around and the chain pulls. It's massive. And they, if they're like, hey, if something happens and we, and we have to close this, we would have to come back up the other complete side. We'd have to go all the way down and come all the way back up. Um, and he goes, so... You know, that's an option, but we need to avoid that because then we're stuck down here. And that also works between mid and lower city as well. All right, so we got that. All right. So they're about halfway this, through the city when about that time things begin to happen. Ouch. Thank you, Oliver, for the sub. I appreciate that. Thank you, Super. I appreciate that. Uh, so, they're going to be... Uh, they start hearing the noise increase. Now everybody's starting to hear the noise. And Cole looks genuinely concerned. You can tell that this isn't something he's had to deal with before. And they start to hear noises that 
now as they're hearing this skittering and noising coming from all around them, different areas. So it's not one. Whatever it is, is not trying to hide its sound. And Cole, with a look of very, very oh hell, starts going like this and begins to start running. Now, Cole had beaten it into their heads. At no time should they move quickly. Running will only get them killed. <laughs> I did. I, I, I kept saying that every time we'd stop for something, Cole would warn them. And whatever you do, don't run. Running will only get you killed. Well, this happened. Cole goes, and then Cole runs. <laughs> so the party's like, okay, this is not good. And everybody runs. Now, I want you to picture this. Everybody is running through a city that they've never been in, that's underground, where there are broken wagons and armor and bodies of skeletons and stuff all over the place. The buildings themselves don't appear to be burnt or ransacked, and most of it's made of stone, but there's wood stuff as well that's over built to last, so it's still in pretty good condition. There's fountains that probably were a fountain that are no longer have water flowing because they've not been cared for, things of that nature. Overall, it's a very nice area, but it's cluttered and it's dark. And now they're running. And Ulrich can see none of this. So they're not running as fast as they could be. Cole, you can see, is looking back. Starting, he's having to stop to wait for them to catch up. Darsh doing the same thing, preparing to defend. When finally Tobias gets this, well, screw this look. And he says a, says a word, and his staff lights up on the end. And everybody, for a second, is like, ah. And Ulrich's like, thank you. And <laughs> Tobias is like, okay. And they start booking it. But as soon as that light came on, the noises started en masse. And everybody starts pulling out their weapons while they're running. That's when the attack happens. There's a creature, a rare creature, that is not commonly used in Dungeons & Dragons, that I've always loved and been looking for a reason to use. And that is called a Sharnling. Kind of. It's a Sharnling. What is a Sharnling, you might ask? <laughs> You'll see soon. So a Sharnling... Uh, there are many of them, and Sharnlings are maybe the size of five-year-olds, children, humans, toddlers, maybe a little bigger than that. But their front legs are twice the length of their back legs. They come in long piercers that are much like a uh, um, praying mantis type kind of thing. They're pitch black. They have a claws on their back feet, their front just come to the legs, and then their mouth it goes back. The jaw is unnaturally further back, so the mouth stretches open more than it should, and it's just two rows on top and bottom of just razor-sharp pointed teeth. Um, and they're pretty fast. Mini Nightmare Demons. That's a good description. So, suddenly, how is it spelled? Uh, Sharn is S-H-A-R-N. And if you're looking it up, you want to look up Sharn, because Sharnlings are my creation, uh, based on the original. So, um, yeah, they're sized like children, maybe. But they're, they just start coming out of the woods. And, of course, immediately, our heroes are in combat. They start rolling their dice. Um, Artemis and Tevin and Dandy, uh, they're... 
their uh, main priority at this point is to keep going with coal. Melee combat is not their strength. These things are not undead, so Artemis' turn undead doesn't work. Um, Dandy is okay with melee, but she's more she's more successful with uh, using ranged things like her throwing daggers and such on a larger creature that when it dies she can get them back. Throwing all her daggers out into the darkness right now is not going to help her down the road. So she's not she's got her hoop pack and she's just trying to maybe bonk as she's running. Um, that's what we call it bonking. When you're using a melee weapon, it's bonking. So she's trying to bonk as she's running through, um, but she's not trying to stop. Darsh, Mercy, and somewhat Ulrich are trying to fight. Tobias's light is bright enough that it's giving quite a glow that they can see how many of these things are coming. And there's probably at least 100 or 150 running, climbing up the wall. They're not all coming at one time. They're on the walls and they're on the ceiling and they're just coming out of windows and doors. So you just patch them and they're starting to pour out of the different buildings um, and then start chasing them. So they're spread out, but there's a lot of them and they're all coming at them at this point. Um, Ulrich trying to stay with them and fight, but at the same time trying to stay within the light, because he's useless in the darkness. Um, Mercy is at that point stuck because she's like, well, I can't stay and really block their defense like, like I would normally do. Those things are terrifying. Excellent, Turtle. You found one. <laughs> Love Sharn. So, um, the Sharnlings zipping around. And Darsh, of course, with a successful hit, as small as they are, and Darsh's weapons being relatively magical at this point, none special magical, like a sword of something or other. It's just a strong sword with a plus whatever on it. Uh, he One successful hit, he'll cleave one. I mean, he can do that. Mercy can normally take one out with two successful hits, because she just doesn't have the same strength that Darsh does. Um, but she actually has a better aim to hit. That's one thing about Mercy. While she, um, she's also using the blunt weapon, so, against some things, she's more successful than he is. These have a physical form. Against skeletons, or something like that, she's way more useful with a blunt weapon. She has a sword, sometimes she can switch to that. Um, she's still using her Morning Star at this point, because she knows if she drops her weapon for any reason in the middle of this, she can just summon it back into her hand. So that's the biggest perk she has with her weapon. And Ulrich uses two scimitars, and he's, he's skilled. He's by far the highest level of her NPCs. Um, Quan's really sneaky and good in battle, but Ulrich in a straight-up fight can hold his own. And so he's slashing through them more successfully than even Mercy is, just because of the type of weapons he's using. But he's having a bit harder time hitting him because he is being affected by lower light because he's trying to stay within the light globe of Tobias. So these are some issues in these type of combats that as a character you may have to deal with, and they had to deal with in this story. You know? Okay, I need to... Protect our squishies, but at the same time, I can't be too far away from the squishies because this one semi-squishy guy who's my minion wants to stay where I am, but he can't see anything if he stays where I am. And so Darsh and Mercy and Ulrich are really holding the line where Cole and Dandy are kind of clearing it in front, trying to make way. But then the Sharns start to increase in numbers ahead of them and they call out. It's at this point that Mercy yells to Darsh and Darsh nodding starts bolting ahead. Now, at this point, Darsh had some magical boots, I think it was. With boots, or it was some type of uh, band that went around his, his feet that increased, he could do like a burst of speed. 
Um, it was something, I can't remember the name of it. I created it. It's, it's in one of my books. But basically, it could give him a burst of speed one time. For, so for one attack, he could come in with a big surge of attack, or he could surge into a wall and use his shoulder. He could do extra me jumping at you damage super fast. It, it may have been boots of haste, but they were limited. They couldn't just speed him up. They li basically just gave him one boost, and then they wouldn't work again for an hour. They had an hour cooldown. So it let a lot of times him get that one surge to help a friend. Somebody's over there and needs help. He can just, with his size, blast through. And so he could, he had those, and in this situation, he used them. And they've had a bunch of magic items that I haven't mentioned in the past that I'm going to, as they actually need them, I'll introduce. I didn't add them at this point to make them survive. It's just one of those things where we didn't need to talk about these boots. When they used them in battle before this, it never made a huge difference. Um, and they got them relatively recently. I don't remember exactly where, but I know they got them pretty close to before this. Um, but yeah, so he's got that, that basically burst of speed, which in, in one round, he can travel the distance of 10 rounds. Is basically the speed rate of it. Um, so he's very quickly able to shoot up to the front of where... Cole is, and of course, as he's coming through, with his size, he's not trying to hit, because while he's going that fast, his reaction time does not increase. And so if he's running and trips, he's going to go flying. This is something he learned the hard way when he first got these. Just because you're going super, it's literally bursting his speed, but he doesn't control that speed as well, as long as he can stay on his feet, and he's not going to be sword slashing as he's running. But by God, he can turn his shoulder and run fast, and anything in front of him is going to get knocked the hell forward with his strength and with his speed. Um, but that is a concern. And once he starts bursting, he can't switch directions. It's a burst in one direction. Um, so, it was, it was an odd give or take to use these. They could be really cool, especially if you want to do damage, because if he successfully does it, and say he had a spear or something, he, he did a lot of extra damage from that extra push. Uh, but there was definitely some limitations to it as well. Uh, he also had, at this point, a quiver on his back, for where you normally keep arrows. Um, and this was one of his. And the, the magic of the quiver is that, turned upside down, nothing would fall out. You have to pull it out. But it was a quiver of holding. So he actually had javelins in there. Um, and he had about five or six javelins, because that was the only ranged weapon Darsh ever really used. So it's just a thing on his back, but he can actually reach in there and pull up this long javelin and whip it. And he had one javelin of lightning left by this point, which is a javelin that when it hits thing, lightning. So he's giving you an idea of some of the stuff that Darsh has. You know, Mercy has her ring. She has the thing around her head that lets her see. Those are two of her very good ones, if you will. Uh, she's got some special... Artemis collected rings. She had a ring of feather falling, a ring of free action. She had a ring of a whole bunch of stuff. And she had them in belt pouches, and she would switch rings depending on the situation. Uh, so sometimes, like, we have to jump off this thing, switch to a ring of feather fall, jump. Because you can only wear one ring on a hand at a time unless the rings are part of a set that require you to have them all. That's an exception to that. Um, and then Dandy, her hoopack was... Uh, Magical hoopack because uh, Tobias enchanted it with a level one plus. That's the only reason it was magical. Um, and she had a bunch of little knickknacks. I'll have to dig them up. She had a whole bunch of little weird things. Oh, and then Artemis had her lions. Remember her lions? Pen and Teller. She could toss down. Remember me telling you about those? These lions that she had. She used them quite a bit. Pen and Teller pop up a lot. Pretty sure I told you guys about Pendor. So anyways, they're going through. Darsh shoots up front, successfully not falling. And now he's up there with Cole, 
and he's actually in front of Cole now because with his big long legs, he's always going to go faster even without the magic boots. And he's just basically trying to cleave his way through because they know approximately where they're going. Cole said, this is how far we got to go. And at this point, there's no reason to be quiet. Cole's yelling, up ahead, turn left, up ahead, turn right. And they're going through tunnels. And that's one of the things that saved him in this situation. It's because they're underground. A lot of times they're running through hallways and sometimes they're big hallways, sometimes they're small hallways. But as long as they stayed mostly in hallways, the Sharnlings can't come at them a hundred at a time. It's just the few that are popping in from windows or doors or get in front of them or get behind them. It's, so Cole started keeping them to the hallways specifically for that. And Darsh was not trying to block anything. He was just trying to clean the way. So he starts getting cut and scratched up a decent amount uh, where he doesn't have armor because he's letting himself be a little bit more undefended in order to do more damage, which is a thing we can talk about later. So up ahead, they get... they. You know, at one point, he, Cole yells, you know, because he's yelling, and they get, there's points when they get to a moment and they're quiet, and there's everybody, okay, cool, Artemis casts a spell, more Sharnlings, time to run again. That happens a couple of times. They get a, a quick one or two round reprieve, because um, they manage to kill off or get into something and slam a door behind them, and then they've got to run. Um, I gave them a couple rounds every, I think it was five or ten rounds, where they had free moment to do something. And uh, at this point, they're like, if we can make it to the Embrace we can probably close it behind us. That's the best thing we can do because from the sound of it, there's just, they just keep coming. Um, unless we close the gate, there's no way to stop all them. He goes, I don't know if there's more in front of us, but the majority of them seem to be popping out from the upper city. They're not a lot in front of them, but there's a few that can kind of be coming from the side that Darsh is having to clear out. I know this is very detailed on this, and I hope I'm not boring you guys too much, but I said I would get into a bit more detail of what they had to go through here in the door, but I'm trying to paint in a vivid picture for you of what they're going through. And they don't have time for a torch, you know? At sometimes in this adventure, if there has to be a torch, it's usually Artemis uh, or uh, that's holding it, you know, because she can have the free hand, and she can always drop it and cast a spell if she needs to. Um, but again, I'm trying to... Build the city, build the view, all this at one time. Please let me know if I'm boring you. I'm, Jim's enjoying it, so I'll take that as a positive. Beast is enjoying it as well. Okay, cool. <laughs> so the Sharnlings are coming in. And again, to, to, to a lot of these guys, they're blurs of heat, right? And the Sharnlings, it was a perfect question earlier, give off just a little tiny bit of heat. In fact, many ways, it's the absence of heat. And I was so When you asked that question, I was so giddy because it was something I was going to have to explain later. I was so very excited about that because I was like, oh, shit, I, I'll get to tell it ahead of time so you'll understand before I get there. But yeah, the Sharnlings have an absence of heat. They just have the tiniest bit, which is mostly caused by the friction of them moving. So you'll see the friction of their hands and feet skitching off the walls and the heat, but it's blobs of darkness. In this situation... Mercy has it the best, because whether it's light or it's dark, she sees the exact same all the time. She never gets affected by walking into a dark room or walking into a bright room. The, the crown, or her, what was it, diem, D-I-A-M, I think it is, the circlet she wears around her head, um, that's one of the perks of that. She, she never gets blinded by going from sunlight to darkness. That said... Magical light in, intended to blind will still have an effect, but she has a saving throw to potentially not be affected by it, even on spells you don't normally get a saving throw. That's something that, that gives her an added bonus, less likely to be surprised by a burst of light or something of that nature. Just a thing. So she's seeing perfectly fine, and what 
Cole is saying is we've got to get ahead. It's not going to be easy to close it. And I don't know how well, if it'll even close. No one's tried to close this in 200 years. And it's clearly not been kept up like normal. And at this point, they can hear more Sharn coming. They, they're, they're, we've got to run and they're talking while they're running. And Mercy yells at Darsh and Cole to go ahead. Run ahead and try to see, because if there's a bunch of Sharn there anyways, it's not going to work. If there's a bunch of Sharn on the other side of the, of the gate, they're screwed anyways. So, like, run ahead and see if you can get it going. Cole has to go because he's got to lead Darsh, and Darsh is the strongest. If it does need some strength, he's the best shot they've got. Where Artemis and Tobias just aren't physically capable of running as hard and as far as Mercy and Ulrich is. And Dandy goes with Darsh and Cole as well. So, they race ahead. Well, uh, Mercy decides to open up the chest of holding. And she, they go down real quick because they have, like I said, I gave them a quick reprieve. She goes down and comes back out. This was her idea. With several flasks of lamp oil. I tell you, they keep a lot of stuff down in there. And they, they think ahead for situations. They've done this before. And as they're coming through hallways, they start throwing it down. And lighting it with a torch. Because they do light a torch at this point. And so they're bursting this in. And they're trying to put flames in doorways. So the Sharns are having a hard time following. And it's working. Um, now, people might ask. Why are these guys such a group being successful. When a massive group of dwarves were not. That's a question I've been asked while telling this story before. The first thing is. The dwarves didn't know what was coming. It came in the middle of the night. Many of them were not gathered and prepared. They didn't know the layout. They didn't have a specific goal of where they were going. They just knew people were dying all around them. And so there, there wasn't a serious defense effort in the beginning. They had to be gathered to do that. They'd never been attacked from within before. It was never something they would have ever considered. It's the one thing the dwarves were not prepared for. By the time they were able to muscle up a guard, they're now being swamped with innocence. People that they're trying to protect. That is going to always make it harder for you. When you have hundreds of uh, innocent old people and children and, you know, the untrained veterans, whatever. All these people here who can't fight for whatever reason. And you're trying to protect them. You're going to have to accept that I may die doing this and I have to hold a line where normally I would flee if it was just a in a military thing, we could try to close ranks and so on and so forth. They had to make decisions that they knew were going to be their death in order to give as much time for the innocent people to flee. Um, and so, that being said, that's why. That's why they weren't... The squishies, exactly. They had to protect the squishies. which I love that term. They had to protect the squishies. And that's just kind of how it works. So, the dwarves didn't, and the innocents that made it out never saw a Sharnling. Because if a Sharnling had got that close, it would have killed them. But at some point, the Sharnlings stopped going. And that's something that they don't un no one understands why. At some point, the Sharnlings have never kept going up to the top. There's a certain point when all of a sudden you get to the bones and such. It starts right here. And there's not anything after that. I kind of touched upon that earlier. They got to a point where they started to find the trash and the bones and such. There was a specific point where that started. And it just got worse the further you went. So I wanted to touch on that as well. So, they're trying to hold the line by throwing the flame down. Does the sun kill them or something? Nobody knows at this point. And I'm going to be honest, I'm not going to tell you things that they don't know, because it may affect things down the story. Uh, good question, but I can't answer it right now. Um, 
So, or if they go high in the sky, well, that's another potential thing. There could be something that's keeping that from happening. But these guys are tossing lamp oil. They just, Mercy's got handfuls of them. And Ulrich and Artemis and Tobias are just throwing them down and lighting them like crazy. And Mercy's just got an arm load because they got the chest of holding back up because they're running while they're doing this. Um, and Mercy's just holding all of these as they're, as they're grabbing them out of her hand. She had as many as she could carry. I think they managed to hold like 12 of them. So they'd run, drop one in a doorway, light it on fire kind of thing. If they could, they'd light on fire and then close the door and keep the fire in there if it was something like that. But some hallways were too big for that. It was meant to be like a more public walkway, so they'd just have to run through those. While they're doing that, Darsh, Cole, and Dandy have run ahead. And they've reached the gate. Now, as they've gotten closer to the gate, they've seen less and less Sharnlings. Um, they can still hear all the commotion behind them, but they're not hearing like a lot of them. A few of them pop up, and Darsh is cleaving the hell out of those. Cole stabs a few. Um, but they basically, Cole leads them into this entryway. And at this point, Darsh is struggling because this was built for dwarves, which is basically Darsh's knees. So there's times that Darsh is literally going up, up a stairs on his side, having to pull himself up. You can imagine how claustrophobic that would be. Snagging his horns, which are even wider than him. The amount of rolls he had to make. There was one point where he got stuck, and he just balled up his fist and punched the wall as hard as he could and crumbled it. <laughs> With his strength, he took some damage from that, but he had to basically bust the stone to get it to crack so he could go around it. But he manages to climb himself up into this gatehouse area, and they get into a larger chamber. It's larger around, it's a bit taller, but it's still too short for him. And in the center of it is, again, one of those spoky things you expect with the wheels to raise or lower. And there's a giant chains built within the walls. And they can see, through a window, a chain link bigger than Darsh. This massive link. And they're like, in, there's, a, there's literally a latch, a, a handle on the wall that if you pull it down... It unlocks everything. Thing in the middle starts spinning. Chain goes down. If everything works correctly. They get there, and of course, there's a padlock on it. Because they don't want somebody to accidentally bump into it. That would not be cool. So, as he is wont to do, Darsh grabs the chain and tries to break it. He can't. This is still Dwarven chain. Strong as a human chain? He's done that. Dwarven chain's way better. So Dandy has to step in, and she has to start picking the lock. Luckily, they brought her. They didn't know that was going to happen. But they start. she starts picking the lock. Because of its quality, it takes a little bit longer than normal. But she is successful. Thankfully, it's not trapped. Dwarves don't set traps for other dwarves. But they're finally able to get that off. And Darsh reaches up and pulls that handle down. Well, he would have. The handle won't move. It's just stuck. And you can see there's a bit of a buildup of funk around the part that pops down and he's trying chipping away at that and he's trying to blow and he's using dark strength but he has to be careful because if he breaks it off they've got nothing so here they are trying to figure out what they can do and they're trying to leverage and different things while this is going on mercy and them are within sight of the gate and they're yelling we're coming and so are they and there's like a wave of sharnlings coming but they're slower because of the fire and some of them are on fire you have flaming sharnlings coming through uh, and they're trying to bust it rush through this what is now because once you come out the tunnel now you're in a main road so they're having to run down a main road through the gate and then it's a big road that leads south so as they're running through here now they're out in the open now the sharnlings are coming out of the tunnel behind them imagine like a spider 
web busting. They're coming through a doorway, right? As they're coming through the doorway, they just start spreading up on the walls, running on the floor, on the ceiling. They're just coming around and a wave of them are coming across the floor behind them. And in front of them are an elf and three humans like, you're just running there, you know, you can picture them running like, get the door closed. And they're busting their hump to get over there. And Darsh is like, I'm pulling, but I feel it getting weaker. I'm afraid I'm going to break this. Cole tries. He can't do it. Cause they can make... Darsh is like, listen, dude, if I can't do it, you can't do it. Cole's like, I had to try. And they're arguing back and forth. And Dandy's looking around the room. And she finds a small barrel. And she opens it up and sniffs inside. And she's like, oh, just horrended by the smell. And then she looks at Cole and Darsh, and she knows how mad they're going to be. But she knows she has no choice. And she runs over and starts shaking the stuff all over the handle. Just shaking it like crazy. And liquid splashing out over the handle. Cole and Darsh are like this, and they're like, Oh my god, no! And she's just shaking it until every last drop of dwarven spirits, the most potent alcohol and most desired alcohol by dwarves and minotaurs, is poured upon this latch. And they're like, we have to save her! Don't waste the beer! But they're just, just ah! And the stuff just starts sizzling and eating away at the funk. And she looks at Darsh and she goes, hmm! Darsh, with a little bit of frustrated look, goes up and pulls, and after a minute, feels it link. And the chain starts to go. And that wheel behind them starts spinning. And they step back because it's spinning so fast. If they stepped into that, it would just kill them. They'd just be crushed in the weight of it. So the friends are running and they're like, Oh, we hear the chains going. We see the door closing. We see the door closing. And now they're trying to run even faster because Darcy and them can't stop it. They didn't realize, you know, what everything was. And, you know, the classic scene, everybody manages to run through and maybe 15, 20 Sharnlings get through before the door literally drops and closes, crushing a bunch of them. And then everybody has to fight these remaining Sharnlings, which was the end of that battle. And there's a window, and finally, they, while they're, everybody's fighting these Sharns, they hear a big whoomph, like someone throws a giant sack of rocks or potatoes out of a window, which is almost accurate. Darsh had to climb through a window, and he fell about two stories, landing on his ass. And so he did picture his weight trying to squeeze through this door window because he does not want to go down those stairs again. And he pulls himself through. Once his horns are through and he thrusts, he's like, I'm out. I'm out. Whew. And he falls and he lands on his back and his side. And so everybody else, because Dandy and Cole ran back down on this side of the gate and came through. Um, but Darsh is laying there stunned for a minute because he literally landed on his head. He rolled poorly and he didn't get the help really quick. But everybody else is going to town and Mercy stuff. And uh, um, Ulrich is thrown down They've thrown down the, the torch now. And Tobias' staff still has his light. Um, excuse me. But Ulrich uh, throws down the torch, which is a centralized light now. So he's dual-wielding his weapons. And Mercy's got her shield in Morningstar, and she's bashing and squishing things. At one point, she crushes a Sharnling uh, against the wall. Because we have a shield bash ability. Remember, I talked about that. She, uh, she has a throwing shield ability, and Darsh has a shield bashing. But she still can bash for regular strength. Um, so they're doing that. Um, and finally, they're able to kill the remaining Sharnlings that got through. And they can hear scritching and scrittering and stuff on the outside of the door. Things trying to cut and scratch through. Um, but once they're all dead, Karn, and, and they see that there's nothing else, they have a moment to rest. Cole's, Cole's gets this big grin on his face. Like, and he starts yelling at the door in Dwarven. 
And of course, Darsh is the only one that in this group that speaks Dwarven. Uh, and Darsh turns away to give him a minute, because the amount of vulgarity coming out of Cole's mouth is a little harsh, even for Darsh, who's a sailor. Because Cole's like, yeah, mother, yeah! And it's like, it's just going to town, because he now knows what it is. He's the, as far as he knows, the first person from the dwarves to survive a fight with these things. Even after all the time he's come down here, he'd never seen one. And they killed many of them. And the fire that's up there is still spreading. And luckily, most of their city's stone. So even if the thing starts to burn, unlike a human town, he's not worried about the whole place burning out. Uh, fires will be naturally contained by the um, overwhelming amount of stone, rock, clay, things that are used as part of dwarven and metal. They're used as dwarven uh, architecture. Uh, so there's n- some things may burn. Maybe there's some wooden chairs, maybe some flags, but it'll burn itself out pretty quickly. Plus, you know, ox- this place is so big, there's quite a bit of oxygen. Another reason they leave the big doors open. But that now becomes a concern. Because now that they've closed one of the two doors... That was one of the only two airways down into mid and lower city. And that's important. There are no secret air tunnels because a secret air tunnel is a secret way somebody might get into your kingdom. Dwarves are not going to play like that. There's only one other way to get air and that's from a really huge valve that if opened will open up a third gate, hidden gate, on the opposite side of the mountain. It's a gate that's never had to be opened. It's the, we're going to lose our city. There's nothing else we can do about it. This is where we have to flee our home. And it's you know, it comes from lower city, and it's just a very long, windy walkway up to get to that. Uh, but it's never had to be used. And hope, But, you know, dwarves, again, aren't idiots. There has to be a back door, right? But it's so well hidden, and it's never used by dwarves, and most dwarves don't even know or have ever seen it. It's very well protected. Um, But there's that. So that was Upper City. Not a lot of individual fights, but it was very interesting to play through. Um, That probably was a good hour, hour and a half of combat with roles and the abilities they were using and what, you know, the idea of throwing the flames. That was their idea. Um, At times they barricaded some doors and stopped and tried to hold the line so they could talk and Artemis could heal. Or um, I think at that point... Uh, they talked about Tobias casting his spell on Ulrich so he could see in the darkness, but Ulrich has never had that ability. And even if he could see in the darkness, they weren't sure how well he'd be able to handle it. Because something like that's not just like, oh, good, I'm, I'm fine. No, you're learning to see differently. Uh, it's, it's infravision, not dark vision. If he had a spell of dark vision, that'd be fine. It'd be just like mercy. But infravision gives him infravision. And someone who's never had that is going to have a very hard time maneuvering themselves. Uh, Tobias, someone with the spell, has learned it or probably used it and practiced it enough time to have a rough idea of what he's doing. Um, but Ulrich would be... Imagine that. Imagine walking into Predator Vision and that's all you get you've never had before. You would probably have a seizure. I mean, you're saying strobe lights. But they were successful in making it through Upper Coromin. And they managed to fight through the Shunnings and shut down the gate of Thenadin's Embrace. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six. Yes, there are six clans. Three in the central, three in the lower, and the upper is owned by all. So, they take some time to rest here. They're worried, of course, that there may 
if there's Sharnlings below, they may start coming up. And what they do talk about is, well, as hard as it is for Darsh to get in there, it is a place we could potentially barricade ourselves in for the night and rest. Um, Darsh, not happy about this, does manage to squeeze through a doorway into a, a different room that was meant to be more of a, a, a room for guards to stay in. And while it's low, he can at least move around easier, uh, even though the beds are dusty and funky. Uh, they, nobody sleeps on the beds. They sleep on the ground in between them, you know, out of respect. Uh, but they do ser- thoroughly search the place, um, and they do not find any Sharnlings in here. Uh, they do find, uh, sadly, the remains of the last few dwarves who stayed to try to protect this. Uh, but that's about all. Uh, so they managed to make that, and uh, now they're able to um, start heading down after a night of rest to regain their spells, get some hit points back. You have to do that in Dungeons Dragons every so often. You've got to give them a chance to break. And they've been traveling for close to a day at this point. It took them over half a day just to get down here. And then they walked through a city, and then they ran through a city, and they fought in a city, lit fire to the city, and then closed the door on the city. So, there was that. Uh, but, trying to turn that wooden thing, Darsh looked at it, he's like, I couldn't do that. I would need my whole crew. Or, you know, half a crew of Minotaurs, because we're stronger than everybody else. But, it would be hard for them, because the roof's so low, Darsh couldn't get a good grip on it. It was going to require uh, a large group of people to get that door open again. So now, if they are successful below... Their only way back up is through uh, Thunder's Hammer, which is the bit steeper but shorter route back up. They also have to worry, are the Sharnlings going down there beneath them? These are things they had to worry about. Hello, Ink. These are things they have to worry about because I like to, you know, I try to keep them scared all the time. It makes my life more entertaining. So, it's at this point... They uh, learn that they have to, or they know that they've rested. They've healed up. Artemis has used your spells. People prayed. People read their spells, get their spells back. Um, they're back to traveling with a torch again. As much as concerned, if there are more Sharnlings, they don't have a lot of time for, um, you know, prepping up spells and casting them again. And while Tobias has his uh, staff spell, it has limited uses and he doesn't want to waste it. He'd rather hang on to it until they actually need it. So they're going to burn a regular torch at this point. They're going to run that gamble. Um, But they do that for several hours of travel. Um, After they've traveled for a short distance down this road, and it's again, imagine like a big highway, right? Just a big wide highway Normally, there'd be wagons going up on one side, down there, almost like a a two-lane highway, right? Maybe three lanes in width. The difference is, on the edge, it's rock instead of a ditch. You know, this was a major highway, and at points, there are spots that you can get to that, much like a highway in our world, there's parts where it's carved out where you can pull your wagon off and rest. If you, a lot of times, had animals pulling it, you know, if that's the case, then give them a rest. There'd be, pl- there'd be fountains there, a place where water, natural water would be. Um, maybe some guards there in case there was a problem, a little building they could check on. And then occasionally they would come to a, a bit of a cavern built in where there'd be some buildings in there, like an inn. Because this is a road. It takes a day or two to travel up it at this point. It's not a short trip. And some sometimes we'll stop and stay at an inn. That could be, you know, what a dwarf would do on their, on their trip. Um, especially if they don't have a wagon. You know, just going up and down, they want to rest for the night. They, hello, Patchy. They uh, they avoid the first one of these that they come through. 
the first inn that they see. The little alcoves aren't as bad because it's usually just a cut into the like a cleaned out rounded area with uh, some water in there. And uh, they check it, and the water seems fine, which is good. It allows them to, uh, the water is a natural spring that runs usually out of some type of uh, crack in the rock or through some type of piping into a decorative carved dwarven statue into a thing, and then the water will go out the bottom. Um, since there's no leaves or trees and such down here, other than dust, there's really nothing that would clog it. So the water has just been going through perfectly fine. Maybe a, a little bit on the murky side, just because there's been some stagnant water there a little bit. A few things maybe running through the dirt through the actual pipes itself. Um, but the water itself coming out, pouring into it, is perfectly fine. So they're able to fill up their water, freshen up, which is nice. There's enough water now that they can use it to wash the blood and whatever's in charnling goop off of them uh, that they need to do. Isn't that right, Patches? Patches doesn't like charnlings. So um, they're able to do that. So let's see here. Um, where are we next? Excellent. Cool. So, they travel on, like I said, for a couple hours. They see the thing. It looks like it's a, a rest area with inns and stuff. They skip that. The alcove, there's nowhere to hide. Except for one little maybe shack or shed where someone who stayed, lived there who took care of it for a period of time. They they can check that and it's fine. Um, and they're going going well. And they, they go on for about half a day. And every so often they come across those alcoves. And then eventually they come to a second area that is like an inn type area. And this one is a pretty big size. There's several uh, uh, buildings, uh, obviously at least two inns, a place to stable horses. It's a nice little village here, some homes where people lived. Um, Cole says he's never been down this far. This is, he's been to the last section where the last inn is, but that's the farthest he's ever been down, just because, you know, with supplies and carrying it himself and not knowing what the danger was, you don't stay in here any longer than you have to. Uh, so most of his time was spent in Upper City, being very quiet and sneaky, and uh, at least not either not getting the uh, Charling's attention, or they didn't care enough him just by himself. But he's never been this far down. But he knows the name of the town. I don't, because I forgot to write it down. I didn't have one, I don't think. So there is a, a little village here. Um, and he's, and he, he says, as much as I hate to go off of this, I would love to see if there's any form of survivors, if there's anything in there, uh, why wouldn't they care if he's by himself? Good question, Turtle. We'll have to look at that. But, um... Ooh, sorry, Patches. You're okay, babe. Um, but it's one of those things where they're like, okay, we have to... He goes, can, can we stop here? Can we take a look? Um, and they're like, yeah, we that's fine. You know, we're in, we're not we're in a hurry, but not we have a year. I mean, a day's not going to kill everything. They don't want to just slack off completely, but, you know, they understand how important it is to the young guy. Uh, you know, to try to see if he could find anything to bring home or, or find anything, uh, signs that maybe there was a survivor, maybe signs of how this all started. Because the thing that, he, and he talks about this with them in the alcoves where it's quiet and they can do that. He, the concern is that he's like, okay, these Sherlings were bad. That was horrible. He goes, but I'll be honest, I don't know if they could have taken everybody. I mean, the amount of damage and the dwarves that were lost, I mean, they were definitely by surprise, but that's, there were thousands of dwarves that died maybe tens of thousands of dwarves. And now we're in a spot where the Sharnlings really aren't are. So if they're all up there, what else is there? If I can find clues, that may be clues if we fail and one of us can get out, then at least we could give that to the High Thane and they may be able to use that as a way to take back the city even if we fail. Um, 
And since that's part of their promise, and these are good heroes who, who are also want to see these people be able to get back home, they agree that that's a good idea. So they're looking around for clues at each of the little alcoves and the stuff they see. Um, and he explained that at the first village. He goes, I've been in that one before, the first little town that they came across. He goes, I've been in there, I didn't see anything, but that's the farthest I've been. Um, he goes, I've never dared to come this far down. Because no one's been to Middle City and ever come back. There's never been a person who's done that. So, oh, you're fine, Cosmic. So they're looking around, and they're uh, trying to be extra quiet. Um, seeing if there's any Sharnlings. But they don't find any signs of Sharnlings. Uh, at least nothing they see. Um, but there's a small inn, a few buildings. And then at the end of the thing is a large what would be almost, you could say, like a stone barn. And this is where people could uh, put their horses for the night, or if they had wagons of supplies, they could leave them here, have their horses rested and fed and things while they stayed at the inn. Because, um, again, a lot of dwarves. This was a major highway. There was always people going up and down it. This was a, a major transit location here. Uh, especially since this is the, the easier of the roads. There's more of the wagons and people bringing their ore and gems or whatever it is from um, down below where more of the mining was. And at the same time, bringing down things like food and stuff, things that were traded for up top. Because in the upper cities where a lot of the merchants' guilds and stuff were, that's where they traveled out of Corman to get stuff and bring back. And then a lot of that, the big marketplace was up top, the major one. Each town had, each level had one, but the major one was up there. And that's where a lot of clans would buy stuff for their people, or the Thanes people would be there buying stuff for the overall kingdom. Uh, so a lot of supplies were being delivered down while things to be traded or used on the upper cities would be coming up the roads. Again, giving you a little bit more information of how Corman works. All right. So as they're looking around here, they, they go through the inns and the place looks slightly ransacked. You know what I mean? Like tables are knocked over, of course, and chairs and such. And they find... Obviously, uh, bones and bodies and things of that nature. Um, but they, there's not like someone who went through the drawers for gold. There's nothing that showed someone was looking for treasure or anything like that, right? Sometimes this, they find the, the skeletons with, and they look and they open the pouch and there's gold or coins. Like their pocket, the leather of the thing may be worn out, but there's coins next to the thing. And they do gather up those coins... But they make it clear to Cole very beginning, you know, this is how much we're gathering. We're going to give it to your thane when, when we get out of here one way or another. Because if we can clear this place out, you guys are going to have a lot of work repopulating this. So we're gonna, any coins we build up or gather, they, they said at the beginning, we, they, this was their decision. They said, we're not going to keep it. If we find anything of value like that, we're going to return it to the thane, the high kingdom or to whoever. At the same time, if they did come across anything of a magical nature, they would consider using it for the quest, and then if it was something that was they will return it as well. If it's a potion of healing, they're going to drink the potion of healing. It's not, you know, they're doing a service down here. But if they find a magical sword, and they use it, when they get to the end, they're like, we found this magical sword, please return it to their owner. They said from the beginning, their goal was to return to them. As long as they can help Michael, they didn't care about the wealth. Because these are all wealthy people, except for Cole. Right, Tobias isn't really wealthy, but he's wealthy in spirit. Um, but, you know, Cole's not wealthy, but Ulrich, while he works for Mercy, has paid well. He has unlimited funds, all of that. So everybody has money. They're not here for some gold coins. 
And even a magic sword, while cool, isn't something specifically they would really need at this point. But they will use it to help fight their way through this, because they're using it for the service of the doors. So that was something they decided. I wasn't even going to hold that limitation. I assumed if they found treasure, they'd keep it. But they decided, no, they were going to do the good thing about that, uh, the right thing. And I thought that was very cool. Hi, Midnight. Hi, buddy. So... They make a point of staying together when they check the building. Because if something, you know, churnlings do pop out and they got to start running again, or they need to barricade themselves in one of these buildings, they want to be barricaded together. So they're very careful to make sure they stay together. So they check the biggest inn first, and again, they find the things I talked about before. Um, in the inn, uh, Darsh and Cole are slightly overjoyed when they come across multiple casks of dwarven spirits and wine. And they make a promise that if they make it successful, the two of them are going to get together and get shit-faced when this is done. They are going to get drunk on spirits. And they don't think the High Thane will have any problem with them taking a cask and celebrating. Once this is done, they're serious men in this situation. And uh, Darsh is like, but don't tell Mercy. And Cole's like, because I remember this happening, and Cole's like, because Darcy, don't tell Mercy about this yet, though. Cole's like, why? Is she against alcohol or something? She won't let you drink? He's like, no, she drinks more than I do, and there won't be any left for the rest of us. And he's like, ha, ha, ha! And Cole takes surprise from it, and then he starts laughing, and they laugh together. A little louder than they should have, but, you know, in that moment, he's like, don't tell Mercy. Why? Because she'll drink it all. <laughs> Two guys giggling. Um inside joke thing. And Mercy looks at him like, give him a look like, you're talking about me, aren't you? <laughs> she would do that sometimes. She'd give him, when they would talk about her, she'd give him a look like, are you talking about me? Because she was like a paranoid person about that. That was part of her personality. It's like, what are you talking about? Is it me? Even when they weren't, they'd be like, and so it became funny. Uh, a little kind of a thing that happened there. Uh, that happened a lot. So, And Darsh and Cole got along really well. Again, Darsh being the only one who speaks Dwarven, um, Cole had pretty good broken common. He spoke okay, but he, when he could speak to Darsh and he had to give detailed stuff, he would tell Darsh in Dwarven so Darsh could, could translate it over better. Because uh, Darsh was, that was the only other language he could speak besides Minotaur and common, but he was very good at Dwarven. Hi, buddy. Oh, no, 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 no. Hang on one second. I got a kitty trying to rip a Dungeons and Dragons map. Okay, no for you. We're back. Um, so, uh, they check that one. There's still an inn, and then there was the barn. They're going, they decide to go around. They always go left first. We've talked about that. The party always goes left. So they check the left building. They're going to check the barn. They're going to check the right building. The little homes they're going to kind of leave. There's too many little homes and things in the walls and tunnels and such. They're just looking at the big buildings. Um, so they head inside the barn. And about that time, something happened. So, you're back. No worries, Brag. Perfect timing. It's about that time. So with the about that time statement, because uh, I say that, the players immediately start reaching for their dice. <laughs> I became, they knew what's happening. They walk inside, and in this room, I want to liken it, I'm trying to try to give you all a mental picture of what they see um, in the way that I imagined it. Uh, the closest thing that I could say is, if you've ever watched Alien. And you walk into a room that's covered in slime and webby-like funk, and there are pods on the floor, 
they're covered in like a greenish black goop on the walls and on the floor and the ceiling all around sticking all over inside of this place uh, that's kind of what they walk into and it's quiet first thing they ask is anything moving around no there was not I described it much to them the same way I did to you. And they said, okay, do we see a giant one? I'm like, no, you don't see anything like that. It's just the pods. They're like, okay. They're very quiet, trying not to talk. They're whispering as much as quietly as possible. They decide they're going to stab one. I want to stress to you guys that my players are incredibly intelligent, very good at strategy, awesome at preparing themselves for situations, and then sometimes in the middle of all that, they throw it in the trash can and do something really stupid. That's kind of how Dungeons & Dragons works. If you've ever played, you'll know that that happens. In the moment, it seems like a good idea. But it's not. <laughs> but they stab it. You're going to see what's inside. Again, they're trying to get answers. It's what they're... Their logic was, if they can find out what's inside, because they think it could be Sharnlings, but if it's something else, they did not do the string and bells. Great callback beast. <laughs> they did not do the string and bells in this situation. But they did prepare with weapons and spells. Uh, they were ready in case anything happened. I'll give them that. Um, but Darsh, of course, being the big dude, not knowing anything, he's going to go ahead and do it. Everybody stands back a little bit. He's like, all right. First, like, do I just, like, try to cut it open or fast? And they're like, they're going to stab it through. What? And this is what he says. He goes, he's going to set it on top, and he's going to slowly stab it in. Because if he hits resistance or it's acidic and starts eating his sword, he doesn't want that to happen. <laughs> Ashley had the same thought. <laughs> he wants to be able to pull it out, right? Because I've said way back in the early, and I want to remind you guys, that it's very possible to break or damage your weapon. But if you have a magical weapon or magic item. Each one comes with three notches. This is how I how I DM it. If you roll or whatever happens would normally break your weapon, it gets a notch. It means it's slightly physically weakened. Still does everything fine. Second notch, same situation. But the third notch will break it. It is possible to have a notch removed. Um, but it's expensive. You have to have a mage. And depending on the item, sometimes somebody physically repair it. Um, it is possible to have a notch removed, never more than one notch. Because um, eventually, it's going to break. Uh, so if it hits a third... So Darsh already had a notch on the sword at this point, and he was concerned it was going to happen, but at the same time, he didn't want to stick a regular sword in there, because these things could be magical, and it may not have an effect. So besides, he's going to use his magical uh, broadsword, I think is what he was willing at this point. So he takes up top. He's, he's, it's it's probably comes up to his... Stomach. It's a little bit bigger than what a Sharnling would be expected to be. Uh, do you, uh, if you don't mind, do you remember what the variables are for the roll? For for this for this attack offhand, I I don't think he had to roll for this one to attack because he literally can set his weapon on it and push down. Um, it's hard to miss that. You know, if, if he said if somebody says I'm going to stick my knife in this table, unless they're drunk, I'm normally not going to make them roll for that. I'm going to assume that's a basic thing uh, that they can do naturally. Uh, although, I have had people drink where I've made them roll to see if they could cut their meat when they're trying to eat. And that was funny. But in this situation, yeah, if you're just setting it on and pushing it down. Now, if something happens, magical things can affect that, where all of a sudden I'm like, make a roll, the situation could change. 
But at this point, he's setting his sword on top and with his strength pushing it down in. And he does that. Uh, successfully. His sword slices right through that. Almost like it was had the consistency of a cactus. Right? So it's got a little bit of hard... No, better, let me take that back. A better example would be a pumpkin. The outside's got a little bit of hard, but once it cuts through that, it just slides right in. And he's about halfway when the screeching starts. His instinct in that situation, finish what he started. Thunk. And then pulls it back out. Now it's covered in this snotty black green slime stuff that's very sticky. It's not acidic. It didn't hurt his sword. But he didn't know. It was very goopy. And they pull it out here. And as they do, the screeching inside increases. By not one screech, but several. And the shell of it starts to crack. And a sharnling hand rips, pops out of one side. It is, in fact, an egg pod, turtle. Uh, but in each one is, of course, more than one sharnling. It was a big pod. Uh, and several sharnlings start sliding out. Now, these ones are smaller than the ones they saw. Clearly, coming out earlier than they should. Oh, no worry, Panda. Have a good one. I'll catch you later. So, several sharnlings start coming out, to which, you know, instinctively, Darst just starts... Cole and Darsh are just stabbing them. They're just taking care of them. They're not trying to defend themselves. They're just trying to come out. They're little tiny Sharmans. And like I said, four or five of them... Five bodies come out. He killed one on the way in. Four more scooch out. And they start killing those. And that calls the adults. Yeah! Sea Turtle, you understand how this works. So suddenly there's a huge screech. Which is almost more like a roar. giving a moment to build suspense, um, from above them. And above them is another layer where there would have been hay and things of that nature to, that would have been traveled down to feed the animals and things of that nature. And a sharn comes down through a hole in the roof that was not really visible. Now, a sharn, much like spiders, very, very, very good example, yes. There's a bunch of sharns coming out. Now, these ones are not ready to be born yet, at least most of them. Um, but the sharn comes down. Now, again, I didn't create sharns. These are Dungeons Dragons things that already exist. But they're very much alike to the alien-type creatures and aliens. Uh, and this big thing comes down. And the sharn, when it comes down, uh, this sharn uh, had at least six pairs of legs. And it had a longer body. And it had two huge clawed things and another smaller set here. And the other ones were the foot-like things. Is this the boss? It's a thing. We'll go with that. But it immediately comes down and it jumps up and it's got, when it opens its mouth, it doesn't have the alien thing. But what it does have is at least five rows of teeth in the top and bottom. Oh, careful, buddy. Careful. Five rows of teeth in the top and the bottom. And it just screams. And it attacks. So they are having to fight this Sharn. Now the Sharn itself, again, uh, is not just like a, a standing on two feet. It's got multiple... So it's standing up, but then its butt end kind of goes down centaur-like or more like a bug-like. So it comes out kind of like a, with the other pairs of feet on it. So from head to tail... 
head to tail. It's probably like, I don't know, 20, 22 feet long. Something like that. For those of you who are metric, uh, that would be a little over 7 meters. 7 to 8 meters, I'd say, would be an estimate. From nose to tail. At least. Oh, that's right. You only see so far into the mouth, right? At least. So, and it attacks. So, they end up having to fight a Sharn. Obviously, I think I, I, you all knew we were going to fight it. They weren't going to shake hands and say hi. So, the battle begins. Um, in the way the battles normally do. Uh, they roll for initiative. The monster rolls initiative. The monster won. Because it got a pro because it was jumping down from the roof. And as it landed and hit the ground with its weighty girth, it caught them by surprise. And it got to go first. And immediately slashes out and does a huge chunk of damage to Darsh. Because that just stabbed his kids. He jumped down, and just this huge thing comes through and stabs Darsh kind of in the side, like he's stabbing him, because he's big, right? And it goes in the front and out the back. So it's like someone pierced his side with like a ear, giant ear piercing. And then rips back out. And Darsh's like, ah! And he kind of stumbles backwards, because it did a lot of damage. And that slimy stuff, while not acidic does have some negative effects. So Darsh literally falls back off, off his feet, down, in a bit of a shock because it burns so much. Again, not acidic. It's not eating away at him, but it does burn the wound. It's a feeling. Um, and at that point, of course, Mercy, Cole, and Dandy are up front trying to fight. Uh, Tobias begins to cast a spell, um, and Ulrich helps Artemis, tr protect Artemis, while... Um, She's trying to heal Darsh. That's her first instinct. Now, normally she'd be casting like a blessed spell to give her bonuses or something to help people. Something like a poison. Yes. Something like a poison. It's, it's not a poison in as much as it goes through your system and it kills you. But it's a poison in as much that it makes it so that flesh in that area will literally die. And can't be healed. You have a short period of time to heal it. Um... Or else, even if you get healed, you're going to have a hole in you like a piercing. And it's always going to hurt. It's always going to feel like a fresh wound, even though it's not going to kill you. That part of your flesh will never heal. Even magically. Sharnlings are bitch. So, Artemis is immediately on the healing of them. The Sharnlings didn't have that effect. But this thing does. The little cuts they got from the Sharnlings, they healed up just fine when Artemis cast a spell. This is the Artemis has to use a couple pretty powerful healing spells that she normally would save for an emergency just to get that to stop. Um, and it's, it's one of those things where the hit points come back, but the physical healing is going slower than normal. And it's going to take him six rounds for the wound to physically heal, even though it's magically healed. He gets the hit points back, but the, the, the wound is still going. Darsh being the guy is, hops back up once he finally has, starts to heal. Decides to jump back into combat. So, this battle goes on. Uh, in this situation, Dandy does start throwing some of her magical daggers. And while her daggers are a little bit more specifically used against undead, every dagger she has at this point is at least a plus one dagger or a silver dagger. Um, and some things, even though... If you're playing Dungeons & Dragons, a lot of monsters, when you're reading their description, will say can only be hurt by silver or magical weapons. Because in some situations, silver counts, and it has to be good silver. 
Um, and then sometimes you'll read the description and it'll say, can only be hit by plus two or better things, which means a plus one sword's still useless. You're cutting at it, but it doesn't do any real damage. Uh, but most of her daggers do pretty well. Her hoop pack is a blunt weapon. Smacking this giant thing with her hoop pack, even though it's a plus one, not going to do much. So she, st she goes to daggers. Uh, Tobias immediately starts casting some spells. He started with his light spell on his staff. He did that in the hopes that maybe this thing would be affected by the light. But it was not. Ulrich is protecting Artemis because he knows that's what he should do. You know, he wants to protect Mercy, but he's not a fool. Artemis is trying to save Dars. Once that's up, he helps get Artemis back by Tobias and behind the, the wall of heroes, which because they've got the door behind them, right? And they're trying to figure out at this point, do we back out? And that's what they decide to do. So they start Artemis and Tobias. So the first one's out through the door, followed by Ulrich, and then Dandy. Mercy, Darsh is last. He's kind of holding the line. Even though he's hurt, he's the big guy. He's got to duck. He's got he's to do that. So he gets out, and they're like, this is a stone wall. It's built out of rock. At least that'll hold it for a little while. Maybe they can get ahead. And then immediately the Sharn bursts through the wall, blowing that entire idea. And they're immediately back in combat. But now they're in, like, town square, if you will. They came out of the barn. There's buildings on the side, and they're kind of in the middle. Uh, there's really no place to run and hide, but they do have more room to maneuver where they are, so it was still a good choice to back out of there. So, but now the uh, Sharn also has a little more room to move, and it is surprisingly quick. For a bulbous butt-end kind of thing, those little legs that are carrying it scooch it around pretty quick, and so it makes it a little bit harder to hit, even though it's a larger creature. So usually when something's larger, it can be a little bit easier to hit, bigger target. But they're fighting against the Sharn. So when they're stabbing, when they're going against that, their concern is, are Sharnlings going to start coming out of this room? So Tobias is preparing a spell, you know, a web spell. He's going to try to web the door, and if he could, the hole the Sharn came out of. So if he does see them, maybe he could block that. He didn't use it before, because it takes a little bit of time to cast this one. So he's, he's preparing for that spell, which means he's not doing much else. He's getting ready to cast that spell if it's needed. His, his web spell, he can tell this Sharn will just rip right through it. But it might hold the Sharnlings a little bit while they deal with the Sharn. Hopefully me saying Sharn and Sharnlings so much isn't confusing for you guys. <laughs> apologize if it is. So, what time are we at? Tell one. Okay, good. So, this is what's going on. They're attacking and slashing at it. Um, look, uh, how loud was the giant creature as it came down? Oh, it was loud! Because it was screeching, remember. Hang on, I'm, I'm reaching for a snap. Uh, it was screeching as it came down with like a roar. So if there was anything else around this area, it would have hurt him. At least if there was anything in this town, per se, it would have hurt it. Um, but the towns are far enough apart that it might echo a distance since of how quiet it is. Um, but it's not... Uh, they, you know, it wouldn't be heard all the way back up in Upper City or Lower City. Because that's, that's days worth of travel. Sorry, I'm getting out of Hershey Bar. I'm a little hungry. <laughs> and that melts in my mouth and I don't have to chew so it doesn't affect my talking but yes, it, it was loud uh, not enough to, to physically harm them no, <laughs> it does not have banshee-like abilities alright so um, this battle goes on taking damage in this battle Darsh got the hard end of this stick um, he gets seriously injured a couple times Sharn really rolls well on him and he's the biggest there. 
if I was a Sharn, I'd attack him too, because it also Darsh also does the most amount of damage in almost every fight. But Dandy also took a pretty big hit here. So much so that she was knocked unconscious. So when she fell, knocked out, um, Artemis had to spend a couple of rounds healing her. And even though she healed her, she didn't regain consciousness. Heal doesn't always mean wake up. It just heals the physical damage. But she was still knocked out, so Dandy was out for a, a little while of this fight. Um, which put um, Ulrich at that point, once again, seeing this, immediately goes over and stands over top of Dandy, pr- protecting her body. Because again, he wants, you know, he's, he's there, they're, they're all friends. Well, he's there loyal to Mercy. They're all friends. He wants to protect, Dandy's in trouble. He stands over her, which is not, uh, not really on top of her, but you know what I mean, like right, right in front of her. So if it tries to go around in any way, he could defend. That always puts you in a negative. It's always harder to fight something when you're also trying to defend the thing behind you. Um, but he takes that upon himself, uh, and which allows Mercy to stay in the fight. How does this work? You talk to everyone separately. I know sometimes some characters don't know what's going on with the other ones. So how did you make sure it was like that for the people? Pangum, good question. I'll address that. So sometimes, yes. In this situation, everybody's in one area. They're all in the fight. They're all standing around each other. So people calling out what they're going to do, I'm fine with. I usually don't say, oh, they wouldn't know this. Because if you have good players, they're not going to use that in a cheaty way. My players very often would yell to each other what they're going to do because they were trying to build, for all intents and purposes, combo attacks. You know, if Darsh is like, I'm going to jump at it, see if you can blind its eyes, Tobias is like, all right. I mean, you know, it's they will work in unison like that. Um, I, I, I always assumed that if they're traveling for days and weeks and months together, they're going to practice. And some of these guys have been fighting together for years at this point. Darsh and Dandy, the amount of times that Dandy will literally jump up and Darsh will grab and throw her is insane. In fact, there's, there's, a, there's an attack they use quite often where he'll just kind of lean forward and then she'll run up his back and jump over whatever they're fighting because once she gets behind things, she gets that backstab damage. She gets that extra hit if she can get behind something. So a lot of times, um, they would work in unison like that. Uh, Darsh and Mercy, fought, when they both had shields, had a good job of keeping the shields together. Darsh, um, being fully ambidextrous, uh, would throw his shield in his offhand so the shields would be beside each other with the swords on the outside, or vice versa. So they did build up some things like that. A humanoid enemy could hear that. That's very correct. That is a, that's a chance you take against a human uh, ally. But at the same time, I play the enemies the same way. Right? Because if you've, you're fighting against ten thieves. They probably have a basic plan as well, but someone might go after the healer. The mage is casting a spell. Get it? They may yell out those reactions as well, and the characters will overhear that. So yes, the bad guys can use some of that against them, but I also give that same opportunity to the... Because that's going to happen in battle. You know, retreat! They're retreating. Surge for it. You know, somebody yells the retreat. You see, you're going to take advantage of that. So yes, there's things. When you're fighting a monster, it's a little bit easier, especially if it's not an intelligent monster that understands what you're saying. You could be a little bit more free. And again, I would assume that there are certain times that they would, again, this would be me. When I played D&D as a, as a player, there were certain things we would talk to the DM ahead of time and say, I want, a, much like a magic spell, I'm going to give a command word. When I yell that, this is what I'm going to do. 
everybody in the party knew what I was going to do because I told them what that command word meant. But anything I was fighting wouldn't know. And I talked to my players, that's things that I did, so they would take some of that information as well. They would use that. They'd be like, oh, okay. Sometimes they had that for specific things that they did. Um, but more often than not, Dandy would do something nobody expected and ruin all their plans anyway, <laughs> which I loved. Um, does the Sharn understand what they're saying? No. The Sharn does not, at least is not acting in that way. It's acting animalistic. It does have a... Oh, I saw... Saw a tiniest bit of leg there for a second. I was afraid we got disconnected. Um, it does not appear to be doing that. All right? So, it's acting in... It still has... And he's not being attacked, so it's a way to do that. I'm afraid you guys were... the. the I'm sorry. It appears on my end that we're getting a little bit of lag. If we are, I apologize. I'm not showing it's anything on my end. My concern is that it's something on YouTube's end. But right now, I'm not... It, everything's working good. It's YouTube. I think it's YouTube. Yeah, because I think it's hitting everybody. Um, but my disc, my OBS is working perfectly fine. So I apologize. If something happens, we get kicked out. Um, I probably will continue next week. If It's an ad. Really? Really? I didn't know it did that. Hop down, kitty. Uh, I apologize. I didn't know it threw ads up in the middle of this. I didn't know that happened. Well... Um, I would say this as well. Um, if something happens, because we're getting close to the end of the day, and something happens and this crashes, I probably won't start another one tonight because we're so close to the end. I'll just continue next week. So I'll throw that in there. Um, that's 17. Holy Christ. I know you said you were... Are you watching on mobile? That could be worse. I don't know. I'll have to look into that. I didn't know that. I didn't even know it showed ads during these things. I know it showed ads if you're watching it later, but I didn't know it did that in live streams. Intriguing. I'll have to look into that. But again, in this attack, so that's what's going. But yes, uh, to Jim's thing, uh, writing the story and playing so many parts, its uh, it can be challenging. There have been situations when we're jumping into a fight where I'm playing 12 to 15 different people and they're each playing their two characters. And that's just on their side. I'm also playing the enemy. Um, so I have... When I pre-write my adventures, and we'll get to a little bit of a... This will be a, a little hint of some of the things I'll talk about in Behind the Dice. Um, I have a very specific way of writing my adventures ahead of time that I'm going to show on that stream where I've already got in the middle of... Like, I have a book like this that I'm writing in at this point. I went from a binder to these type of notebooks. But I'll get to a page that literally has the monster, all their stats, and a place for me to keep track of hit points right there. I already know what's going to happen. And I've got in the middle... And some of the stuff that is in binder, like maps and stuff I've drawn... All of a sudden, you'll get to a point where there's character sheets. Where I've created character sheets for NPCs. Hold on one second. Cat scratching my couch. Um, so I'll have, um, you know, character sheets. Even though they may only see them one time, I'll create character sheets for bad guys. So I know their stats. And if somebody says, hey, I'm a wizard, I'm going to cast this spell. Well, that spell means I get a saving throw versus spell. What are my saving throws? I've got all that information. So I have hundreds of character sheets of people they fought once. And I could probably... Re I'm, there's probably been a couple times I've reused someone who's given them another name, especially if it's somebody relatively generic. Um, but I have character sheets aplenty throughout my binders and books of different people that I've created from NPCs, kings, wizards, monsters, villains, uh, so that way they can jump in there. And I have specific stats. Like, oh, he's wearing this type of armor. He's wielding this, but he's got a dagger here. He's also got a, crowbar, got a crossbow on his back. You know? I can say they've got that. Or, hey... 
I'm attacking. He jumps out and he has an attack. How do I know he has a better? Because he had a 30% chance of uh, hiding in shadow and a 50% chance of moving silently. And I rolled those and he passed. Because I try to be fair about it. I don't automatically say they get to do it. They're a person. They've got to roll like everybody else. Maybe they won't do well and they'll give up their sneaky thing they're trying to do. And the heroes are going to jump on it. So it's a lot of stuff to keep track of. So the more I can have pre-written down for combat battles and stats, the easier it is. Um. Glad you guys are excited for that. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm test. I'm. I'm making my test episode tomorrow. It doesn't mean it's gonna be the first one that comes out, but I'm gonna test, do one, go back and watch it, and maybe improve on that before the final one comes out at the end of the month. Or it could be really good and I keep it. I'm not sure, but I'm testing my first one tomorrow. Um, so let's uh let's do some more sharning. In this fight, like I said, Darsh took the big hits. Dandy got knocked unconscious. Ulrich took a few extra hits once he started protecting Dandy. Because this thing, if you remember, had two huge hands and two smaller claws. It got four attacks around. And the big attacks did more damage. But it's the, uh, the smaller ones had a better chance of infecting you with the unhealing goop that I talked about earlier. And if you go online and you read about a Sharn, half of this stuff is not what's in there. I custom my monsters. I always give them pros and cons. I try not to make them too overpowered. But sometimes I'll take a monster that's a really weak monster. Like, I'll take a hobgoblin. The party comes across the hobgoblin. So what? Well, this hobgoblin is a, you know, 18th level shaman in its group. This is a badass hobgoblin. Because the hobgoblin doesn't mean he's a pushover. So, things like that. I like to custom my own monsters. But I start from the basics. Um, so, yeah. I keep going off on a tangent. I apologize. So... They're fighting at this point. Artemis uh, has healed Dandy to the point that she's not going to die, but she's um, unconscious. Uh, she did not get hit with the goopy stuff in enough that it's... Because I had to roll for that. She did not get hit with the goopy stuff, that, but her wounds were healable. She just took too much damage. Um, and that's another D&D thing that I do. If you take 50% of your maximum damage or more, in one single hit, you have to roll a saving throw to see if you're knocked unconscious. That much pain and damage um, will cause shock for anyone uh, and can cause you to... Pack. It may not be enough to kill you, but it still could be enough to knock you out. And that's something I think is... And it's also the same with, with monsters. Uh, with exceptions. There's, boss monsters usually immune to some of those things, but the average villain, yes. So if Dandy has 40 hit points, Sharn hits her for 21... Didn't kill her. She's unconscious. That's kind of how... That's one thing we, we play as in, in my, my version. I'm not sure if the no, new stuff does that, but it wasn't originally part of 2nd Edition back in the day. So, they're fighting the Sharns. Overall, they took a lot of hits in this. But, of course, eventually, they were successfully able to take the Sharn out. There was no super special strategy to do it. It was just a long fight of getting hit and getting and hitting back. At one point Artemis did call out her lions, Penn and Teller. And they jumped into attack when um, Mercy took a big hit and had to get a heal. Um, had to back off. The lions jumped in to help protect Artemis. And then Dandy allowing Ulrich to jump back into the fight. Um, and they were able to successfully beat the Sharn. When the Sharn dies, again I said its body was almost like grub-like in something like caterpillar-like it dies, it, it's almost like it didn't have a full skeletal structure. So when it dies, it kind of blobs down a little bit. 
So it doesn't squish completely in the liquid or anything, but it does deflate a little bit, if you will. And the players managed to see it. And no Sharnlings came out of that room. Now, Darsh, being the guy he is, likes to make sure, stabs the thing a few extra times, makes sure none of the group gets on him, and they decide to go in and check to see if the Sharnlings are coming out, because they can't have them coming out. And they get in there, and there's no sign that any of the eggs appear to be hatching. Even though they're different sizes, they decide the best thing for them to do is to destroy all the eggs. And so they take the next while to do that. A couple of the larger eggs, Sharnlings came out that were big enough that they had to actually take a round or two of fighting. Took a small hit, but usually killed them. Um, but most of them, as they did, were in basically earlier stages of growth where they just kind of rolled out and you just, you just kill them. Or they just as soon as they roll out, they were just going to die naturally anyways. Um, but it turns out that the in behind this room was another much larger room where supplies were stored that they didn't see. So I do it again after the first time? Yeah, because again, they don't want these things to come out behind them. Yes, turtle. <laughs> Never leave an enemy behind you, my friend, if you can help it. The gate blocked the uh, Sharnlings from coming down, but they don't need a room full of these things. They go through and successfully destroy all of the pods. And there was a much, said, larger room with a more, like, nest thing in it where clearly the Sharn was living in at some point. Um, but it was a cave, looks like a door in the back, and in behind there would have been probably barrels of things and crates of whatever that the Sharn had just destroyed and thrown out and had made this her room. And then they were getting ready to leave once they had done killing all of these when Darsh decided to do one more thing. He had a nagging question he wanted to be sure of. And I should say that while they're doing this, uh, Tobias was definitely taking samples. Teeth, claws, skin samples, blood samples. Tobias carries a ton of stuff. Memories, he's, ma- he's a mage. You never know if this stuff's going to be valuable magical components. He didn't know what this was. He'd never heard of it before. That in itself makes it special. So he's taking an eyeball here. He's got all these test tubes and stuff, and they wrap them up and put them down in the chest of holding for him uh, until they can get back home. But he's, he's harvesting from creatures whenever he can. It's, that's an assumed... I don't say it every time, but they come across... Does anything specialize... Anyway, he does, actually, yes. And that's one thing I'd mentioned earlier in, in my version of Dungeons & Dragons. Um, mages, at, certain, at a certain point, choose a profession. Like, we have the sea mages. Uh, both Lamia and Tobias are makers and researchers of magic items and artifacts. That's their specialties. But there's also battle mages who specifically um, work to be able to work with warriors or military groups to use spells in, in combat like that. Um, there's actually going to be mages that are more archaic, where it's more about the conjuring of demons and so on and so forth, or, or, or things like that, travel between planes. There's different classes that are available. Uh, but yes, Tobias is, in fact, a specialist in the creation and research of magic item and artifacts. So for all mages would have taken these things, but for him it means even more. Normally, they take them back and give them to someone like Tobias or Lamia. But they gather up all that stuff. Well, while they're doing that, Darsh is looking down at this big old stinky Sharn. And he's, he's like... And he starts cutting it open. And the smell is atrocious. But as he cuts it open... a Literally hundred or more of small little pods all flow out in the guts and stuff as they come out of the stomach of it. And he's nodding his head because he was he was under the assumption: is this the thing laying these pods? 
Because if it didn't, then that means there could be another one. That was his thought. So he said, I'm going to do this. So they cut it open, and they just stomped. These were little pods. They weren't going to go anywhere. They weren't going to grow. But they probably just stabbed them, stomped them, crushed them. They said they destroyed them. We didn't go into detail. They destroyed all the little ones that popped out. But they were just pods, probably at the point where they weren't even fertile yet. Um, but they did manage to do that. And that was, in their mind, okay, cool. We got the queen. That was the assumption that they got. That was the assumption I led, because to be honest, it's very much along those lines. Uh, that was the one that was creating the little ones. So the question they have to ask themselves now then, pod samples? Oh, he took samples of everything. Yeah, he took he has test tubes of plenty in the chest of holding. Anytime he travels with these guys, he gets to bring way more stuff than normal. So he's got bags and bottles and boxes and uh, barrel things he can put stuff in. He took samples of everything he thinks is important. Um, so there's that. So at this point, they're like, okay, cool. We got that, but that's a big creature making Sharnlings. Still, not enough to have killed all the dwarves that had been murdered. That was a big fight. But the six of them took him out. A hundred dwarves against that probably would have succeeded. So, is that the only one? Or is that the only thing that's down here? Questions that need answers. But after they successfully killed the charm, cutting it open, they also found a bunch of stuff it had eaten. And inside they find a potion, a magical gem, and a bunch of miscellaneous coins. Sharn eats everything. So, hey Siege, what's up, man? So, they take these things. Again, with the assumption of we're going to give these back. It was a potion of levitation. Tobias, being of his specialization, has extra spells of identify than most regular wizards would, because that's his proficiency. And a gem of brightness, which again, creates light. Um, and it was funny, because I didn't specifically choose that. Um, a lot of times I let them roll for treasure. So in the player's handbook, there are charts. I'm like, okay, roll a, roll a percentage. I got a 62. Cool. Roll a 10-sided. I got an 8. Okay, cool. Roll another number. A 6-sided. 4. This is what you found. And there's a lot of times I'll let them random roll. And there's a lot of times that I have the treasure previously already chosen. But once in a while I like to throw a random thing in because then it throws a little bit of random even into my story. Um, maybe they'll get something that I'll be challenged with having to find a way to work around because I gave them something really funky. The roll Gem of Brightness, which was oddly... So I, I can tell I wrote it down here as a roll. I have three random rolls. One potion, one miscellaneous, and some coins. That's how I wrote my treasure. Hey, Paul, what's up, man? Thank you very much. I appreciate that. So finally, to get this up, they decide they do not want to rest here. They're feeling pretty successful of what they've done, but they do not want to rest here for fear that there could be more and may come back. So they decide to carry on down the road a ways to try to find one of those small alcoves with a small hut in it, and try to, because a small hut is still a little house, that they could try to go in and barricade themselves in for the night and rest, and then, because they've gone, again, they're going to get rest. This has been traveling for about a day at this point, down this thing, and they have another day's worth of travel to get there. So they continue down the trail a little ways till they find another little alcove with a well in it. They're very common. People need to stop for drinks all the time animals. There's usually a little pool that'll go up for the animals can drink. 
And uh, they find the hut, sure enough, go inside, no problems. And there are no skeletons in this hut. That's one thing I want to stress. They go in there, they don't find any bodies. And they've actually seen a little bit less of the trash, like broken wagon stuff, as in this area. There still is some, but less than what they found above. And so uh, that's uh, kind of where they decide to rest for the night, re-heal up, learn their spells, and prepare. Make sure that everybody's in good shape. Because tomorrow, at least by the end of the day, they're going to meet they're going to make it to uh, Central Corman. And I'm sure be delighted in the pleasant surprises that they find there. But what they find, we'll talk about next time. Hello. Because we're at 1024, and that's a good place to call it. So that was the first level of Corman. Um, So... I'm uh, I, again. There was a lot of detail about Corman, and as we move forward in the game, the game in the story, um, cities and things. <laughs> yeah, you heard cat meow. Yeah, midnight. They know it's almost treats time. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, excited, I'm glad you guys are excited for Behind the Dice because, like I said, the the very first. I'm going to try to dedicate each episode to a specific topic, and uh, I'm going to. The very first one is going to be what is Dungeons and Dragons, an overview of what we're talking about. It'll have some of those stuff in, but it's going to be an idea. And then each episode, I'm going to watch how do you create a character, how do you do this, how do you run a monster, how do you come up with a city, different things to move on where I can use my stuff, as well as um, help people. Because the goal, part of it's the mechanics. How do you roll a character in Fifth Edition? I can I can pull that out. We can talk about that. But how do you create a character? That's very different. Creating a character and rolling a character. Anybody can roll a character. It's up to you to create the character. The best ways to do that, there's some things I've learned in my time that really help with that. And so we'll have episodes on things like that. (laughs) Yes, Teresa? Really? Because now you see, you can't arrest me or you won't hear any more story. I found my get out of jail free card. (laughs) DM me about the vanilla-ish member server. Um, Yeah. Feel free. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm going to try to work on that one tomorrow. That one may not pop up till Thursday. Sky Factory 4 I'll have up before the stream at 6 p.m. tomorrow is my goal. The earlier I can get done, the better, because I also want to do the behind the dice. But um, that's the goal. Um, but thank you all for coming by and hanging out and letting me tell my story. Uh, Greg said, for non-D&D, half that were d and half those went to play D&D. People more than we <laughs> Find a way to arrest you. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. We'll see. I'll uh, I'll claim asylum. I'm Canadian. <laughs> but seriously though, thank you guys for coming by and let me tell the story. Um it is a blast to get to hang out with you guys and do stuff like that. It is a ton of fun to see how interested you get into this. Um and how excited you know you are to the next episodes. And I get so many questions from you guys between episodes. And the Merge Worlds chat in the Discord channel has really gotten more active lately, which I love. And jumping in there and trying to answer stuff as well. So um, it's really, really a lot of fun to see you guys uh, getting into the story. And while I know it's not as many people that like the other type of streams, uh, it is nice to see this this group is getting a little bit bigger. More and more people are discovering it and enjoying it. So thank you to all of you who have been sharing this with your friends or telling family members or um, get them interested and you know, thrown by the story. I've had people say, hey, this is cool. I told my friend he's going to watch it next time. Or I got my sister listening to it. So thank you very much for that word of mouth. That's the 
best thing that I could, I could ask for. Uh, so thank you very much. Stayed awake for it. Well, you are very welcome, Jim. And I hope Ashley gets to feeling better. Smashly, my friends, is not feeling well. Uh, but she's feeling a bit better. Hopefully that continues. Hello, uh, Leon. Good day. Um, but yes. Uh, sorry I came in catching up with my friend. You're fine, Siege. No worries, man. Hey, everybody got to have their fun. <laughs> All right. Thank you for coming by. If you had a good time, please click like. Most importantly, remember to subscribe to the channel. Hit the bell notifications so you know when I'm throwing this stuff at you. Come join our Discord channel. You find it on my website, onlydraven.com. Button at the top, take you right in there. You'll also find links to all my social media accounts, including the new um, Merged Worlds Instagram, where I post a different character's figure every day. And I eventually will get to the point of uh, maybe even throwing the occasional one out there you've never seen yet. Thinking about it. In fact, I just finished making a mini for every one of the gods. So starting February 1st, um, I have like 20 or 21 god figures. So everybody can get an idea of what the different gods' physical form or their standard form looks like. I'm pretty excited to share those. Um, if you are a member, thank you so much for being a member. Thank you for supporting the channel in that way and helping the channel grow. Uh, your continued support is overwhelmingly appreciated and helping us get to the point that this can become a full-time gig so I can hang out with you guys all the time. And as well, those of you who have been donating, again, thank you so much for that, sir. Uh, that was uh, a shock today, and I appreciate it. And I owe you four shots tomorrow. And I will be doing that on uh, our 6 p.m. Minecraft stream again tomorrow. So hopefully we will see some of you there. And as always, extra special thank you to my moderators who do all the hard work and the heavy lifting on this channel and who I greatly appreciate. But you guys all have yourself a wonderful evening. Thank you for hanging out with me on Merge Worlds. And I will see you tomorrow. Have yourselves a great day.